Hey, Michael, this is David Dalt from Things Not Seen Radio. I've got a movie that I think you'll love, or at least it's a movie that I love, and I want to share it with you. It's called F for Fake, and it's by that famous director, Orson Welles. It's one of my favorite films. Check it out. Welcome to the Origin Story Podcast, where each month I ask an artist I respect to share with me a work or artist they love. This month, Dr. David Dalt introduces me to Orson Welles' F for Fake. In the, and so for those that don't know Orson Welles, like he was he was a force of nature in the in the media world in the beginning of his career. And he he managed to like tear up radio. He tore up theater and then he tore up Hollywood like nothing could stop him. But then something shifted. And by the end of his career, he was a laughingstock. He was a fat man kind of being lampooned for doing wine commercials and getting drunk while he was doing the wine commercials. And so I feel like in that particular moment at the outset of the film, Wells is acknowledging and inhabiting all of the things that we're saying about him. He's, 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 he's presenting us with the laughingstock. Look, I'm a fat man in a tux and a hat doing tricks for kids. In this fun, let's just let's get it out of the way. You're gonna laugh at me. But in the process, he gets us on his side. Hey y'all, we are back. The first episode with the new format. And I've gotta say, I'm a little out of practice. Uh, I need to apologize for my audio during the podcast, as you will soon hear, while I sound awful. My guest, thankfully, the audio professional, sounds amazing. It's my own fault I was taping in a room that I normally don't use for that and using my AirPods instead of one of the three good mics that I own uh, for various reasons I won't go into here. Uh, But it is totally my fault, and I promise it will be remedied before the next podcast. It doesn't sound terrible. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of a line from the TV show Fargo. If you've listened to the Owls on Culture podcast, the podcast I do with my son Hank, You know, we're big fans of the show. And the season three villain, Varga, says, The problem is not that there is evil in the world. The problem is that there is good. Because otherwise, who would care? Well, it's the same for my audio. It's not great by itself, but alongside David, it is extra rough. So I appreciate your patience with that. It's definitely not unlistenable by any means. Uh, And the conversation itself, I think you'll enjoy and makes up for it. And who is that conversation with? That's with Dr. David Dalt. He is a writer, media professional, and an educator. He is the host and executive producer of Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. It's an award-winning radio show and podcast. David began the show in Memphis in 2012, and it now airs weekly on WCPT in Chicago. It is distributed nationally through the Public Radio Exchange. David is also co-host of The Francis Effect, a popular podcast that features commentary on news and events from a Catholic viewpoint. And he is the co-founder of Sandberg Media, a consulting and production company that works with clients across the nation to develop and produce content for radio, streaming, and television. In 2015, he received an Emmy nomination for the television documentary Selma at 50, Still Marching. David teaches at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University of Chicago, where he's currently an assistant professor of Christian spirituality. David receives his PhD in religion from Vanderbilt University, and he holds an MA in religion from Vanderbilt, as well as an MA in theological studies from Columbia Theological Seminary. 
He lives with his family in Hyde Park, a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. And David introduces me to F for Fake. It's Orson Welles' free-form documentary about fakery that focuses on the notorious art forger Elmire de Hore and Elmire's biographer, Clifford Irving, who also wrote the celebrated fraudulent Howard Hughes autobiography. And then it touches on the reclusive Hughes and Wells' own career, which, of course, started with a faked resume and the phony Martian invasion. Uh, but it's so much more than that. Uh, it's one of uh, what people will call the, uh, one of the first film essays. We talk about it uh, and its significance. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And I promise to get the audio issues fixed next month. Without further ado. Dr. David Dalt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Michael Henry Harris, I'm delighted to be on your podcast, and thank you so much for inviting me. It is my pleasure. Uh, I am sure we're going to bounce around a lot, uh, but I kind of wanted to start up with where you grew up, and full disclosure for the audience, I know where he grew up, because I grew up in the same place. Uh, but I've heard you call it the rust on the buckle of the Bible belt, and I may have, I may have butchered that phrase, but something like that. Would you talk just a little bit about it? Sure, that, that is correct. Uh, you and I both grew up in Muskogee County, which is about 100 miles south of Atlanta, Georgia. I think I grew up in the city proper known as Columbus, and you grew up, I think, more in the county area, or at least it was the county at the time. I may have that backwards, but anyway, what listeners need to know is that at one point, you and I lived about five miles away from each other, and you were one of my favorite uh, people to go and visit at your house and, and play with all of your toys and ride on your your uh, your little scooters and stuff when we were like six or seven years old, and that's just a delightful memory for me. So I've known you for quite a long time. And we we both grew up in a place that was recovering from its resistance to the civil rights movement and recovering from the economic degradation that came from being part of the decimated South after the Civil War. Uh, we, we grew up in a place where there were a lot of textile manufacturers and a lot of uh, a lot of people who uh, had ideas about how other people should live, either religiously <laughs> or politically. So that's 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 our hometown, and uh, that's wh that's where I grew up. But I was not from there. I was born on the West Coast at a military base in California, and I was like two or three when my parents moved us to Columbus, Georgia. Which base? Fort Ord, and no longer exists. But I was born at Fort Ord Military Hospital. Do you have any connection to there? I was born at Fort Ord Military Hospital and moved to Columbus around two or three years old. Well, here we go. So you and I are kind of moving in parallel, moving in stereo. So yeah, that's uh, my my history was as an army brat, and uh, and once we hit Columbus, we sort of stayed there for most of my formative years. And it sounds like that's the same case for you until we both went to college. That is exactly it. Where where did you go to school? Uh, I went to college several different places. So I started out doing. Uh, work while I was in high school at Duke University in an advanced program called the pre-college program that translated into doing some other work at Columbus College and so when I finally got to the place that I graduated from the University of the South in Suwannee Tennessee I was technically a sophomore but I Not stayed at the cool. yeah I stayed at the University of the South also known as Suwannee for four full years for better or for worse uh, and uh, graduated from there with a degree in philosophy that is outstanding. Uh, and if my research is correct, you definitely stopped at an undergrad degree and did not do any grad schools whatsoever and did not do anything else and have no letters behind your name. Is that correct? 
Well, that's true for a number of years because at the time that I graduated from my program at Swanee, I was told in no uncertain terms that I shouldn't do any further graduate work and that I, I wouldn't be good at it. How uh, did that what, conversation happen? Because oh, I, I, I said to my advisor, I think I, I would like to go on and, and maybe do a PhD in philosophy. And I was told that that was a really, really bad idea. What listeners need to understand is that philosophy, particularly American philosophy, has had a cleft down the middle of it for most of its existence. And that's the divide between the analytic philosophers and the continental philosophers. What I didn't understand at the time, because nobody explained it to me, was that the department that I was in was deeply, deeply committed to analytic philosophy. I came in deeply committed to continental philosophy, to the Hegelian tradition. I was interested in, in Marx. I was interested eventually in deconstruction and people like Richard Rorty. But nobody took that stuff seriously. And so I was constantly fighting against my department. And when I was ready to go on, my department looked at me and said, what you're doing isn't really philosophy. You're no good at this. Like It was a very adversarial relationship. I have come to understand that that was actually very good for my intellectual development. But at the time, it was I just graduated with no sense that I had any vocation for this. And so my first jobs coming out of college were I managed a loading dock, and then I managed another loading dock. And for a number of years, I was in sort of low-level service jobs or blue-collar work because that was what I was convinced I was good at. It wasn't until a number of years later in some weird circumstances that I stumbled into a graduate program at Columbia Theological Seminary on the east side of Atlanta and discovered that I was actually really good at this stuff and went on to do a master's degree there, a second master's degree at Vanderbilt University, and finally did my PhD in systematic theology and theological studies with a minor in Judaic studies at Vanderbilt University. Very cool. Thank you. I, we got a lot to get to, but I do want to go back just a little bit. What, what, how, was that, how did that end up being good for you to be challenged like that? You said later on you were able to view it as something that was a positive. Well, I don't want to cast aspersions on uh, on any colleagues, but I have experienced through my life that when I get into conversations with people that have been trained exclusively in the continental tradition, they tend not to be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with analytic philosophers or even answer any of the arguments or objections that analytic philosophers raise, whereas I was thrown into the shark tank, and I've, I've had to deal with uh, the kind of antagonism towards continental philosophy throughout my entire intellectual development. And so I know those traditions really well, and I, and I am conversant in them even while I don't necessarily pick up their tools and want to use their tools. But there are times where I'll be in a conversation and I will pick up you know, the tools of the analytics and I'll start to engage with them. And I've even had people say, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, exactly. Stay in your lane, whatever. But uh, but I find that that it has been really helpful to me to have had that kind of adversarial relationship uh, in my in that formative part, partly because I think that where I went to school, it was a liberal arts program through and through. And I benefited from all of that, from being exposed to things that I never thought would be interesting. I draw on that every day from that wide liberal tradition of you need to learn not only your interest and your discipline, but you also need to learn things in the hard sciences, in the human sciences. You need to learn art and how to do art, these kinds of things. So all of that has been really, really useful to my intellectual development. So learning in an adversarial situation can be really painful, but for me, it also happens to be really useful.
That's very cool. And I feel like that, uh, that idea of that wide ranging education is kind of disappearing a little bit. Uh, but I too, even at university of Georgia, not exactly the academic powerhouse, certainly at least back in the day, benefited from a little bit of everything. Um, absolutely. Could you tell me a little bit about your PhD program and what you uh, wrote your thesis on? Sure. Uh, and this is going, uh, listeners, thank you for your patience. What you're going to realize is that every time that Michael asks me a direct question, I'm going to back up three steps, walk around to the side and come back to it obliquely. And I apologize for that. So in the same way that I didn't have a direct path into undergraduate, but I went to several different schools before graduating from one school, uh, while I was in seminary and doing my work at Columbia Theological Seminary, uh, I got on the radar of a group of scholars at the University of Virginia that were engaged in a project called scriptural reasoning. And for those that are unfamiliar with that, scriptural reasoning is a wonderful uh, trialogue of the Abrahamic traditions. In other words, they get a common set of texts. Like, let's say, let's say the Old Testament talks about Noah, and the New Testament talks about Noah, and the Quran talks about Noah. Let's get all those texts together in a room where we have people from the Jewish tradition, people from the Christian tradition, and people from the Islamic tradition. And let's have a reasonable conversation where we try and learn from each other, not convert each other. Uh, around these texts. Let's learn what these different traditions are saying about these texts and kind of try and go as deep as possible, gaining wisdom. And the, the highfalutin idea behind scriptural reasoning is the Jewish idea of tikkun olam, or repairing the world. So through building relationships around these texts, across these historic antagonisms, we're going to repair the world. Okay, so I was exposed to that. And because of that, I really wanted to go to UVA and to do a PhD at UVA. And I was admitted to UVA with a letter that said, you are admitted to our program, you will not get funding, we will never give you funding, but you're still welcome to come. Which was basically a non-welcome welcome, right? Or it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, so, your head. What's your hurry? So I, so I couldn't go to UVA because I didn't have the money to pay for it. I needed a program that would actually uh, give tuition dismissal and actually maybe even give me a stipend. And all that was off the table at UVA. So I was admitted to Vanderbilt and I went to Vanderbilt and basically tried to do the kind of engagement that I would have done at UVA, uh, but in a Vanderbilt setting. And uh, Lord love Vanderbilt. They were very open to this and very supportive of this. And the project that I ended up writing ended up not being strictly scriptural reasoning. It got influenced by some other ideas along the way. And the best way to describe what my dissertation was, was it was looking at the idea of the magisterium. And again, for listeners that don't know what this is, this is the, the authoritative structure in the Catholic Church that says, this is how you are to read scripture, and this is what scripture means in broad broad strokes, that's what the magisterium means in Catholicism. It means other things, but let's just use that as a shorthand. The Protestant Reformation said, we're going to throw that off, and we're just going to put the Bible in the hands of the people and let the Holy Spirit be the interpreter. The Holy Spirit will become the magisterium. The thesis of my dissertation was that didn't actually happen historically. Instead, what happened was they put the Bible in the hands of the people, but it was a Bible that had a critical apparatus running at the bottom and editorializations throughout that shaped the way that Protestants read the text. So editors and sort of unseen forces of of the editorial process became a kind of covert magisterium showing us how to read 
this confusing book that we call a Bible. And how I stumbled on that was when I was teaching students, I was trained by Walter Brueggemann uh, in, my, in my seminary to really go into the complex and confusing parts of the text. And I would bring these complex and confusing parts of the text to my students as I was an undergrad, uh, as I was a graduate student sort of teaching these things. And my students, when they were asked a hard question about the text, would immediately respond with a very simple answer. And what I realized was they were looking at the bottom of the page, looking at the footnote that clarified the, the problem in the discussion, and simply parroting back to me what the footnote said. So the footnotes were acting as a kind of covert magisterium. Here's how you read it and get out of the dilemma. And so I, I tried to write a dissertation that examined that process and drew some theological conclusions from it. I think now, 10 years more later, the pro the project that I that I presented for my PhD has some flaws, and I'm currently trying to correct some of those flaws. But at the time, it was good enough to get me a doctorate. I gotcha. That that's that whole thing is fascinating. I love the idea of the uh, at UVA and of everybody coming together and looking at the text, and that's fantastic. Uh, are you trying to correct the the PhD kind of stuff in the in the books that you're writing now? Is that related to that or no? Yes and no. Uh, so I have under contract, my PhD will be published, but it will not be published in the form that I submitted it. I'm basically doing the equivalent of a gut rehab in the entire middle sections of it. And uh, listeners can't see this, but Michael can see that behind me, <laughs> there's a big whiteboard full of chicken scratching. And that whiteboard is me over the past several months reconfiguring the middle part of the dissertation so that it now more closely reflects uh, what I what I am thinking now about these questions about the covert magisterium. But with that being said, the covert magisterium set up a process of thought that led to uh, me stumbling into another set of conversations similar to the UVA conversations at Syracuse University with a group of outstanding scholars who work on a project loosely known as Iconic Books. And this was looking at the way in which the materiality of holy books plays into the interpretation. So there's a, if you've ever seen the movie The Apostle, uh, which is a, a movie about a Southern preacher uh, sort of on, on the run from the law who comes into a little Louisiana town and sort of sets up a ministry there. There's a scene in The Apostle. It's a Robert Duvall movie. It's really, really good. There's a scene in The Apostle where he's, you know, he's running an integrated church and there's a guy in the town that doesn't like that. So he comes, this guy comes with his bulldozer and he's going to knock the church down. And Robert Duvall's character, The Apostle, sort of takes the Bible and puts it on the ground in front of the bulldozer. And the guy refuses to run over the Bible with his bulldozer and eventually climbs down from the bulldozer and collapses weeping uh, because he can't run over the Bible. That's the kind of thing that the Iconic Books Project was looking at. Moments like that where we're not reading the text, but the text is doing something really powerful socially or materially. As I got into those questions, I, I, get, I got really fascinated by these kind of material questions. And a lot of my later project after the dissertation has been trying to think through these kinds of uh, these kinds of material questions around the Bible and what that means for our politics, our ethics, uh, the way that we conduct our our social discourse. So there's a lot of kind of rays coming out from this central point of asking the the initial questions about kind of how a Bible works. That's that's very cool. Uh, you're writing these books. I know you're a musician. Also, I've watched some of your live streams during uh, the, when the COVID was at its peak. Uh, which are entertaining. You're a professor as well, and you have 
uh, at least one radio show and a, and a podcast. Uh, I, I guess I'm curious of, of these mediums, of these various things that you do, is there one that is closest to your heart? Is there one that is the primary? Yeah, thank you for asking that and asking that in, in such a generous way. Um, so when I got out of my PhD program, uh, listeners may know that the academic job market is just a cesspool and has been for a couple of decades. It's very, very hard to find a job. And so as I was going on the job market, I also worked with a career counselor and um, the career counselor did a battery of tests and was trying to find, you know, how can you take these skills that you've just gotten and apply them to things outside of the academy in case you can't get a job in the academy. And one of the one of the things that the career counselor had me do was a kind of free writing exercise where he said, just start writing whatever it is that you would like to do. Don't filter whatever, just start writing and just fill a page and then we'll talk about that page. And so going through this exercise, as I started writing without any filtering, the very first words that came out were the words, I have always wanted to be a voice on the radio. And that actually uh, surprised me. It surprised the career counselor. But uh, the career counselor came back and said, okay, you need to figure out how to make this happen. And so I went uh, into my first job. I was hired as a visiting professor at a little uh, Catholic college in Memphis, Tennessee. And while I was there, there was a, a, I was listening around the dial on the radio. I hadn't settled on a radio station. And there was an AM station that uh, had an ad on, on the radio saying, are you an expert in your field? Basically, have you ever wanted to be a voice on the radio? Why don't you call our manager and uh, and see what we can work out? So I called the manager after talking with my wife and figuring out kind of what all this would mean. And that ended up becoming uh, a radio show that I've been producing now for the past 10 years called Things Not Seen. And we, we started out on the air in Memphis. Uh, we went off the air for a while and were only on the internet uh, while I was in transition. And then in 2013, we moved to Chicago. And a couple of years after that, we got onto one station in Chicago for a few years. And now for the last several years, we've been on a, a kind of lefty leaning uh, all talk station, kind of like Air America was in its politics back in the day here in Chicago. So radio is my first love uh, and doing this kind of audio where we're having conversations and making them sound good. That's really where my passion is. I very much like writing, but writing is much more difficult for me than radio. I, I think a lot about teaching and I enjoy teaching, and that also is a source of great satisfaction for me. So all of these aspects are important parts of how I think about my day-to-day -day sanity. Uh, but I would say that radio is the, is the real non-negotiable in that mix, that the times where I have been in situations where some... Uh, some job or some requirement, except for my family, has gotten in the way of producing radio, I've gotten rid of that requirement or that job instead. So I've quit jobs over situations where they've tried to get me to stop making radio since I discovered that I love doing it. And you, you also asked about music, and I want to circle back to that. Music has been an important part of my life, but let me say it this way. Um, I didn't grow up with a lot of resources, but I did grow up with a lot of trauma and violence in my life. And so for a long time, writing music and performing music was the cheapest and most accessible form of therapy that I could have had. 
And as my head has gotten healthier and as my soul has healed from some of those violences of the past, music has taken on a different form in my life. So I don't approach the performance of music the way that I once did, and I'm still figuring out how it fits because it no longer has that therapeutic role that it played for so long. So these are broad strokes to answer your question. If you want to go deeper on any particular, I'm happy to. Well, I want to, uh, I kind of wanted to do it earlier and I skipped over it, but I, I would love to talk a little bit about your journey uh, in relationship to a, a deity, to a God, to Jesus. Because uh, I know you did not grow up in the church, as the Southerners like to say. This is true. Uh, so the household that I grew up in, uh, my mother was very vocally uh, atheist. And my father was very quietly something else. And I didn't find out until I was in my 20s kind of what that whole combination was. And it turns out that my father was raised Catholic, converted to Judaism when he was 18. And, you know, by the time that I got into my 20s, my parents had been divorced for over a decade. And he was worshiping at a Southern Baptist church, but he still had a mezuzah on the door and, and around his neck. So, you know, th there's a lot there that we could dig into. But basically, my my childhood was one of kind of distance or outright hostility to organized religion. And when I got when my parents divorced, I was moving from third grade to fourth grade. Um, and that meant sort of moving for a time to a different school. So I spent a couple of years at a different school from the, from the one that I, I went to for most of my life. And the first day I was there on the playground, I mentioned to another kid that my family didn't believe in God. And by the end of recess, that was all over the playground. And by the end of the day, it was all over the school. And for the next two years, I had people of all ages, including teachers, cornering me in various social situations, accusing me of all manner of, of uh, horrible things, or just telling me that I was going to go to hell, or trying to like back me into like planting a flag on cosmological questions. Like I have a, a, a visceral memory of just trying to walk to the bathroom and three guys stopping me from a grade above me and saying, David, where did the universe come from? And I said, I have no idea. I just need to pee. Um, I've heard it's the Big Bang. And one of them, curly-haired guy with blonde hair, skinny, looked at me and just said, try God, David. So this was my experience of religion for most of my uh, most of my growing up was just it's a club I don't belong to and the people in it are jerks. Yeah, I could use a stronger I could use a stronger phrasing than jerks, but I'm imagining this is a family show, so just fill in your own blank there. But <laughs> but they were they were not good people, and I I did not have a good experience with a Christian until I was 19 years old. I'll just say that. And uh, I, you know, in high school, there were several well-meaning people who tried, like I, I went to like young life meetings, because that was one of the major social loci of high school was kind of going to these Thursday night young life meetings and things like that. Nobody there ever actually was able to uh, present to me anything friendly about Jesus. They, they were friendly, but they, were, they, they gave me nothing about uh God, the Holy Spirit, the Son that was of any use to me whatsoever at that time. And it, like I say, it wasn't until I was much older that something actually began to break through. Do you mind talking about what did break through? So or is that, I, if you don't, no, that, I, cool I don't, too. I don't mind at all. I, 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 so I, when I was in college, uh, I dated 
a woman and I have again, a very visceral memory of one day she just pulled out a Bible and she said, have you ever actually listened to any of the stories of the, of the New Testament? I think that, you know, Swanee, where I went to college was a, an Episcopal school and we were both kind of, you know, the, there was literally like a chapel at the center of campus. And, and so, you know, there were always stimuli for us to talk about, you know, things that were coming up in sort of in the social landscape that were related to Christianity. And I, I forget exactly what it was that prompted it. Maybe it was a question of mine, or maybe it was just the way that the conversation had gone. But this young woman pulled out a Bible and said, you know, this is an interesting question. Let's actually go to Scripture and start to, to think about how Scripture talked about this. And it was, it was the point where uh, the devil is tempting Jesus and, you know, is literally quoting scripture to Jesus. And so, you know, this young woman was sort of reading me through this and saying, and, and so, you know, when it says this here, and she would flip back to another part of the, of the Bible, and she'd say, it's actually talking about this part. It was the first time, looking back now, it was the first time anyone had ever pulled out a Bible in my presence and not tried to hit me over the head with it, metaphorically. That right. anyone had actually sat down and said, you can be a conversation partner with this document, and you can you can have... You can have skepticism about this document. You can ask questions about this document, these texts, and there are answers and you can, you can dispute the answers and we can have a conversation about it. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be uh, condemned to eternal fire <laughs> for even asking. And so that was, that was one sort of wedge. Um, you know, a, another piece of this was uh, that because I had been involved in the arts in high school, I had been uh, I had been in drama, and I had also been as a part of being in drama. I had been a really active member of chorus in high school, and when I got to college, I wanted to keep singing. Swanee's in a very small town. They had a community chorus that was really bad, and they had a chorus based at that college chapel that's there in the middle of the campus that was really good. And so I could take chorus for credit and and get a chance to sing. And so I was in these, uh, you know, I was in this space where every Sunday morning I was getting up usually hungover, and I was I was going into chapel, and I was singing these beautiful songs as the sun was coming in through the stained glass window. And you know, that first year, as we got closer to Easter, one particular song started to come up again and again, and it's uh, hymn number 458 in the Episcopal hymn book. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord would take frail flesh and die? Well, at that time, I felt pretty loveless, and I was acting in some pretty loveless ways, and here I was singing this beautiful song with beautiful harmonies with, you know, sunlight streaming through the windows. And I'm singing, you know, this, this line, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. And the entire song, the hymn goes through like all the things that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus did for the people that hated him, you know, uh, sweet injuries, but they at these themselves displease and hence despise. You know, the lines are beautiful. The poetry is beautiful. And I found myself on these Sunday mornings singing this song and weeping, and I didn't know why. 
<laughs> and it took me a lot of years to figure out why. But really, if you want to, I mean, I'm not Methodist. I've never been Methodist. I've never really been around a, a Methodist congregation for any length of time. But really, I will say that if you want to know what really pierced the armor, it was that hymn. So I was saved by a hymn in that sense. Uh, and I still find myself uh, choking up when I actually contemplate what that hymn means to me, because it is so much the encapsulation for me of the gospel. Jesus going to the people that society has said we don't want, and Jesus even going to the people that have said they don't want him and binding them up and healing them and giving them grace and life, even as they're killing him. Like, that to me is the most succinct encapsulation of the gospel, and it's the one that still animates the way that I think about engaging with other people and the way that I think about engaging with my readings of the Bible. But I want to say I wasn't a Christian in college. What happened in college was I sort of got an opening point to what we might call a shift from atheism to theism. And it was several years later that I actually began to articulate that, like my late 20s that I began to articulate that as this narrative is Christian. And, and that sort of opened the path for me to then have a series of unfortunate events that led me to seminary and to everything that has followed. But it really started with that wonderful woman pulling down the Bible and reading it in a, in a kind and open way with me. And, uh, and I don't think that I would have been nearly as open to the stories uh, that I was getting from this hymn and from the other hymns that I was singing if I hadn't had that experience of welcome and solidarity from a person who was not interested in kind of insulting me uh, with the gospel. Right. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Sure. Um would you also talk a little bit? I've I've heard that you your part of your process or part of your journey has been that you were a Quaker for a little while, and then at some point you became Catholic. And would you just talk briefly about a little bit of those because uh, those seem uh, different? And I'm sure the appeal and, sure. and your process. Yeah, I and and again, I, what I want to stress to listeners is that none of this was clear when it was happening. It only becomes clear to me when I look back and I see the threads. And that I'm not trying to say any of this in an apologetic way, which means I'm not trying to use my story to convert anybody. I don't think that my experience is in any way conducive to anyone else having belief. It just happens to be the set of circumstances that have made me uh, be the person that I am. And so around the same time that I was uh, exposed to a non-threatening reading of the Bible, I also was working in the campus bookstore and was shelving books and uh, and it was my birthday's in January and so we had just gotten back from the winter break and I was shelving a bunch of books and it was it was my birthday and I decided that I was going to buy myself a book from the bookstore for my birthday and I, as I was shelving books I was putting up this really odd volume it's got a white cover. It had kind of ransom note letters on the front. And the title of the book was Biodegradable Man by an author named Milton Mayer. And I didn't know anything about Milton Mayer, but I was really intrigued by the cover. And I was really intrigued by just, you know, 
what I what I came to read on the dust flaps. And basically, you know, I had been hanging out with a bunch of lefty kids in high school who had introduced me to uh, magazines like In These Times and The Progressive and all of that. And here, Milton Mayer, this was a collection of his essays that he had written for magazines like In These Times and The Progressive. And I was like, this is my guy. I love this. I'm going to check this out. And so I bought this book and I began to read it. And I would, and through that spring semester, I was reading these essays. And most of them are kind of good lefty political essays. They're really well written. They, they, they have a really good moral seriousness to them. And I just really fell in love with the way that Milton Mayer was writing and all of this. And then there in the middle of the book, there's an essay by Mayer called Sit Down and Shut Up, which is Mayer's reporting of his first experience going to a meeting of the Religious Society of Friends who are popularly known as the Quakers. And so I'm reading this. I'm already sold on his style. I love the way that he writes. And he's talking about his experience with this religious group. And he says, you know, historically, they were always anti-slavery. Historically, they always treated women and men uh, with equality. And historically, they have always been radical pacifists. They were anti-war. They were egalitarians with regard to economics. They just, you know, from, from the pages, Quakerism looked fantastic. And I remember thinking to myself after reading that essay, man, if I was ever going to be anything religious, I'd be a Quaker. And that was kind of the, and again, this is looking backwards, that was kind of the bait that that the Holy Spirit put on the hook, forgive the imagery, um, to get me thinking about actually being part of a regularized religious practice. And I remember remarking to uh, the manager of the bookstore and folks who are in spiritual or mystical circles, that man was Carl McCollman. He's still a good friend of mine, but he, he has written a number of books on spirituality and has become sort of a, a, a real expert on the, uh, the kind of history of Christian spirituality since that time. But at that particular moment, I, I remarked to Carl McCollman, the, the manager of the bookstore, you know, I loved reading about these Quakers. I wish that there were still some Quakers around. And Carl said, well, there's actually a very small Quaker meeting here, meeting at Swanee. Uh, and, and he introduced me. And he, when he said the name of the person who sort of gathered the meeting, it was a person that I interacted with every day. She was the woman that went around taking pictures of all the sporting events and everything. Um, you know, we had we had called her Katie Kodak, but her name actually was Lynn Hutchinson. And it turns out that she's a member of the Hutchinson family, which is a, a storied and long, long loved Quaker family. So she was there and she would gather like this four person meeting for worship. And so I started going to meeting for worship with Lynn Hutchinson and with the other people worshiping with the Quakers there on campus. And that continued. I, I found myself uh, very filled by going to this, uh, no longer as a person who wanted to sing in a choir, some kind of instrumental thing, but actually because I wanted to go someplace and worship. So I, I ended up quitting the choir because meeting happened at the same time, and I started going to Quaker meeting. And that continued when I left college and I moved to Atlanta. I became part of the Atlanta Friends meeting. But I want to say Quakers, particularly Quakers in the South, make it very easy to be a theist, but they make it a little bit more difficult to be a Christian. Uh, because a lot of the people, and we, we talked about this earlier in the conversation, a lot of the people who are attracted to Quaker meetings in the South are fleeing the kind of authoritarian Christianity 
that we've talked about earlier, the kind of fire and brimstone, you're going to hell stuff. And so there was not a lot of talk about Jesus or a lot of talk about the Bible in either the Quaker meeting that I went to at Swanee or the Quaker meeting that I went to in Atlanta. And as I began to realize that that old hymn, 458, was still bubbling in my in my brain, and I began to really fall in love with Jesus and these stories from the Bible, that actually began to peel me away from the Quaker meeting. And that was a long process, and that was a loving process, I want to say. It wasn't antagonistic. I was supported every step of the way, but we we mutually discerned eventually that I needed to go a different direction than Quakerism. And so that led me for a time through the Presbyterian Church. So my all of my seminary training was at a wonderful Presbyterian seminary, PCUSA, Columbia Theological Seminary. I can't say enough good things about that program. I was trained magnificently by that school. And for a time, I stepped into the Presbyterian uh, ordination process, and I, I even was, I functioned as a pastor. I want to be careful how I say this, uh, because I was not an ordained pastor. I was what's called a stated supply pastor. But for all intents and purposes, I pastored a Presbyterian church 40 miles south of Nashville for about five years. Um, Even though I was not a Presbyterian formally, I was still a Quaker and was becoming Catholic at that time. Uh, And so obviously we're glossing over a lot of details in the process. But let me just say, you know, the, the Quakers were a wonderful place for me to incubate my, my non-atheism into theism, and they were also very supportive as my theism matured, that's my word, but that may be a, a, a divisive word, as my, as, my, as my theism transmuted into Christianity, and then the Christianity that I eventually uh, landed in was bigger than any uh, Protestant bucket I could put it in. Uh, and so, you know, moving, moving to the Catholic church is a, is a real, that's a long, complex conversation. It's tied up in my, uh, my dissertation work. I basically convinced myself in the process of writing my dissertation that sola scriptura, which is one of the sort of main tenets of Protestantism, was not a viable concept. What does that mean? You're going to get well, it's so, so the notion that you can base uh, the authority of your church in Scripture alone. So this was Luther's great move in the first Continental Reformation, you know, where he pushed against the authority of the bishops and said instead, well, I'm just going to read the Bible, and that's going to be how I authorize the framing and the, the structure of my church. But at the same time that Luther was doing that, he was literally taking books like the book of James and in his table of contents, moving them to another part of, and, and putting them sort of over to the side saying, you know, the book of James, the book of Hebrews, these, these are not really proper books of the Bible. I have to keep them in because of the canon, but I'm not going to really keep them in. So he, he was still editing and he was still sort of saying that he had a canon within his canon. And this, this is the function always that you're, when, when you try and base your, your, your church structure on a text, texts are by their nature, infinitely interpretable. A Bible is a book. And you have to eventually say, I'm reading the Bible this way, or I'm reading this particular book this way. But that doesn't stop someone else from being able to come and say, but I'm reading the book this way. And so to me, 
Sola Scriptura became a kind of foundation of sand. It was, it was constantly self-corroding. And anyone who said that they had access to the right reading of the Bible was actually accessing something outside of the Bible. Now, I'm, as I'm saying all this, I'm moving really fast, and you're going to get people writing back to you wanting to argue with me, and that's just fine. Just I'm saying to everybody, I'm moving fast here, and I'm, I'm making broad strokes. And so I had, at that particular point, a crisis uh, on my hands because the Bible was no longer a viable authority for church structure for me. And so I said, I can either go back to being an atheist or, and I didn't want to do that uh, for a number of reasons, or I can find some other foundation for church structure. And the other kind of uh, working foundation for church structure for a conservative like me um, is, was apostolic succession. And so at that point, I was like, I can either go to the Orthodox Church or I can go to the Catholic Church. As I, and I, I had wonderful encounters with various Orthodox congregations, but I, I began to realize that at least for my sense, Orthodox Christianity was very balkanized. It was very political in, in, a, in a limited sense, and it was very territorial. And so they were constantly fighting the, the various types of national Orthodox churches were fighting against national Orthodox churches. Can I interrupt what you I wanted, real, real quick? I'm sorry. Yeah. Would, would you briefly define the apostolic uh, succession? Is that what the word, the phrase? Sure. And uh, thanks for slowing me down. So there's a point in the Acts of the Apostles where uh, and actually, this also happens in the Gospels. So there's a, there's a couple different points. So in the Gospels, there's a point where Jesus says, listen, the ministry's gotten too big, and I can't do it all myself. And so he lays his hands on the disciples, and he says, the same things that I do, healing the sick and, uh, and uh, forgiving sins and even raising the dead, you'll do that now as well. And, and so these ministers who have had their hands laid on them by Jesus go out and begin to do these wonderful things in the name of Jesus with the power of Jesus, not the power of their own. And then, of course, you get to the Acts of the Apostles and you get the tongues of fire coming down and, and, and sort of the, the beginning inauguration of the church. Those two things combined together is the, the sort of notion of, of apostolic succession, which is if you go in the Orthodox Church or in the Catholic Church, the narrative is that the bishop that is standing in front of you, from whom all of the priests in the diocese derive their authority, that bishop had hands laid on him by another bishop, who had hands laid on him by another bishop, who had hands laid on him by another bishop. And if you go back far enough, that laying of hands in unbroken succession gets back to that moment when Jesus laid hands on the disciples. Now, you can argue whether or not that's an accurate narrative, but that is the narrative that's operative in both the Orthodox churches and in the various Catholic churches. And so, and, and to some extent also in the Anglican churches. And so all of these, this just becomes an alternate way of thinking about church authority. It's no longer based on a text, but rather based on what's called a deposit of faith that is entrusted to and cared for by these, these uh, descendants of the apostles. And that gives them the power to then interpret authoritatively doctrine and the right reading of the text and, you know, proper moral behavior and all that sort of stuff. That's where the power of the bishops comes from. I got you. And I, I want to say this, but correct me if I'm wrong. I think I've heard you say that this localization of the authority and of the, uh, of the Catholic church is part of the appeal to make this world better, to fight capitalism, to, uh, to do some good in, in a localized way. Is that, am I saying that correctly? 
I, I love, again, that you've done your homework, and I, I, I'm so grateful to you and your listeners for letting me go on and on about this. So I have said things in the past that one of the reasons why I chose Catholicism over orthodoxy was because it looked to me as if Catholicism was the one player on the global landscape that was big enough to stand up to global capitalism and actually have a fighting chance. And I will say that the papacy of Pope Francis has helped to embolden that particular interpretation. I still think that there are that there's a that there's a, a resource or a set of resources in Catholicism that can actually get away past the kind of uh, world-killing mess that we're in. But at the same time, there's a danger in Catholicism because it does have this global narrative that we can tend to think that Catholicism is like gym class, and that is that everybody in one location does Catholicism exactly the same way as somebody in another location. They're all wearing the same uniform and jumping in time to the same commands. And that is not actually how Catholicism works as you look at it in its practice. Catholicism is always local, which means, and let me explain what I mean by this. So Catholicism defines itself in Lumen Gentium as a church of churches. And so there is one global church, yes, but every local, every locality, every see, every diocese is not gathered around any kind of global Catholic identity, but rather is, is gathered around visible identification with their particular bishop. And their particular bishop is in visible identification with the Bishop of Rome, who's known as the Pope. And this is the, the way in which Catholic authority works on paper. It, it, that's not the story that we tell ourselves. The story that we tell ourselves is that there's one set of rules and everybody follows those set of rules. How it actually works in terms of the way that the, the church talks about this in its canon law and in its definitions of itself like Lumen Gentium and other, other church constitutional documents is if you want to know how you are supposed to live as a Christian in your particular local area, you look to the bishop and, and you, you expect the bishop to give you clear instructions. And, and there are times, demonstrably, when bishops disagree. That's not the narrative that we like to say, but we, we can see this playing out right now with the German Synod and with the American bishops and even amongst different bishops in America. There is a very strong local interpretive character to Catholic practice. And sometimes, you know, in the past when we didn't have a global communications network where it was very easy to compare and contrast these local interpretations, we could live in the narrative that Catholic, that Catholic practice, Catholicism was the same everywhere. But when we actually look at Catholic practice in practice, we see that it is and has always been hyper-local and hyper-interpreted. And, and for me, that actually is uh, a wonderful thing. Not because I think that there are many paths up the mountain per se, but rather I think that that ever you know God created the world in extraordinary variety, and that one of the ways that uh, Catholic practice, when it's actually allowed to flourish in this way, is really beautiful, is that it honors that extraordinary variety and gives that extraordinary variety a chance to flourish. So, I, so again, I'm speaking in such broad strokes. We can go deeper in any of this, and certainly, if people want to circle back with me and. and push back on what I've said. I'm happy to have deeper conversations about this. This is all shorthand. And I will also be putting in our show notes some interviews that uh, David has done, some podcast episodes where he, he goes in depth on this. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, but I, I want to move on and talk a little bit more about Things Not Seen Radio and what is its mission. And uh, specifically, I'm really curious about how you've seen, uh, or if you have seen over the years, 
different trends with your guests because you've done hundreds of interviews now. And I'm just curious what you've seen across the landscape of the actual material that y'all are discussing. Again, I appreciate very much the generosity of your questions and kind of how, how you're framing all this. Um, so I've, I've told this story in a couple of different ways such that it has become a little streamlined for me. And so forgive me if the details seem a little too polished and a little too slick. So there were, there were a couple of factors that led to the starting of Things Not Seen. One of them, as I mentioned, was this scrawl that I did from the career counselor. I've always wanted to be a voice on the radio. But in terms of the, the actual theme and shape of the show, um, a couple of factors played into that. One factor was right as I was finishing my dissertation in 2009 and getting ready to graduate from my PhD program, my mother passed away very unexpectedly. And as I said earlier in the conversation, my mother was an ardent atheist and uh, of all of the religious uh, comportments that she disliked, she disliked Catholicism the most. And I had only recently disclosed to her, I waited several years after this, this happened, uh, and I became Catholic before I actually told my mom that I was Catholic. And very soon after that, uh, she passed away very unexpectedly. And so let's just say that mom died with unfinished business and conversations that we had not resolved. And that messed with me for a long time. And listeners who have experienced grief, you know that grief is not linear and you know that grief is going to take you in some very strange directions. And one of the strange directions that my grief took me was that as I began my first job, I said I, I was starting to teach at this little college in Memphis, uh, I began to have, um, the best that I can describe it is a kind of stage fright for writing. Like when I would, when I would uh, have to uh, prepare materials for class, I found that it was really hard to like sit down and type out long things. And, and, and then it began to grow to where I found it even really daunting to reply to emails. And then eventually I reached the point where I couldn't even like write a grocery list out longhand. Like anything that had to do with writing uh, was, ab was absolutely terrifying is the wrong word. A, a student asked me about this, a, a student who's become a dear friend asked me about this a number of years ago. And I said, it was like losing your right arm. You can remember how you picked up the cup of coffee, but no amount of desire or will will allow you to actually pick up the coffee with the arm anymore. It's just was, it was lopped off. Well, this is a death knell for any scholar because scholarship, particularly promotable scholarship is based around writing. And so I was really in a, in a really panicked state and I could not, uh, I could not figure out a way forward. And then a, a, a wise friend mentioned to me, you can't write, but you can still talk. And so maybe for the time being, you could just interview people who are scholars and you could have conversations with them and you could record them. Well, this became the kernel of one of the pieces of why I started doing things not seen the way that I did, is I wanted to actually have real in-depth scholarly conversations with people that were doing scholarly work. 
as a way of creating something that eventually would be uh, a way through this mess that I was in, where I wasn't creating work myself. And still, my publishing record is terrible because it has <laughs> taken me a long time to get writing back on the deck. And it, it was it was a 10-year journey to get back to the point where writing was was possible again. Um, and but But I did a lot of talking in the midst of that. The other piece, uh, and I've mentioned this in a couple of other places, the other piece was I was listening a number of years ago to an interview by Terry Gross, who hosts a program called Fresh Air on NPR. And Terry Gross is a wonderful interviewer. I've learned a lot from her and her style, but she's really, really bad at talking to religious people. And this was a particular interviewer uh, interview with an anthropologist by the name of Tanya Lerman, publishes under the name, I think, T.D. Lerman. And uh, Lerman had just come out with a book, Coffee with Jesus, where she had worked as an anthropologist going into Southern evangelical communities with people who sit down and they have daily meetings with Jesus where they have a cup of coffee and a Danish for themselves, and they set out a cup of coffee across the table or some equivalent, and they have an imaginative conversation with an invisible deity, and that becomes an important part of shaping their day. About three-quarters of the way through this conversation, Terry Gross just says it. She says, listen, when kids are young, they have imaginary friends, and eventually you say to your child, you can't have your imaginary friend anymore. Did you ever feel like there was a point where you just needed to say to these people, give up your imaginary friends? And that's a paraphrase, but it's not a paraphrase by much. That's pretty much almost verbatim what Terry Gross said to T.D. Lerman at that time. And I remember I was driving at the time that I heard that, and I nearly wrecked the car. <laughs> yeah, because it was, I bet. It was such a horrible, dismissive question about someone else's deep reality. Yeah. And so the ethos that really animates everything that I do in Things Not Seen is I want to have deep scholarly level conversations with people who take their faith seriously. And I want to ask them serious questions about their faith, both intellectually serious, but also morally serious. And that's, that's a phrase that comes to me from my friend, David Dark. And he and I have had a lot of conversations about this idea of moral seriousness, but basically it's, it's taking a certain responsibility in your actions for the care of the world. And this gets back to that Takun Alam idea. Um, but I, I really didn't feel like Terry Gross was asking a morally serious question in that moment. And I, I wanted to, to have that be a different sort of thing. And I'll say, I wanted to create a show that could sit alongside something like uh, Fresh Air on NPR with the same technical quality, but kick its ass up and down the line with regard to uh, not only the quality of the audio, but also the quality of the engagement with people of faith. And, you know, longtime uh, listeners may also recall that there was a show that started out at one time called Speaking of Faith. Uh, by Krista Tippett on NPR, and a couple of years after Speaking of Faith was on the air, they changed their name to On Being, because there's a kind of uh, a kind of uh, uh, antagonism uh, in, at some level, and I haven't figured it out yet. But there's some kind of antagonism at National Public Radio towards actually taking faith seriously and speaking about it seriously. So Things Not Seen has been uh, an attempt to try and have NPR-level conversations. Like We're not an evangelical show. We're not ever going to be again on evangelical radio. Uh, and we weren't a good fit when we were on evangelical radio. It's a different kind of show, and it, it's got a different kind of audience, and it asks different kind of questions. And there's no attempt, at least in the episodes that I've listened to, there's no, there's no attempt at conversion. 
you know, that's not, no. that's not part of, and you said that earlier. And I, well, I, and that, that gets back to that scriptural reasoning thing. Like I sit down with you because I want to understand you better. Cause I think the world is healed when we understand and listen to each other better. Not when you jump, like I jump, you know, it's not, it's not designed to try and get you to, to see God the way that I see God. I want to understand as much and learn as much from the differences in how we see God as the similarities. Will you talk a little bit about, uh, how you produce that, uh, kind of how the sausage is made on that. I would love to hear as someone who is, you know, starting this kind of podcast or restarting this podcast journey uh, and interviewing people uh, a little bit about how you prepare with your guests, uh, if you're comfortable sharing some of that. Sure. And I, I want to make sure that I'm answering the question that you're asking. Are you asking how I create the and approach the interview itself or how I actually take the interview and turn it into a finished product? I, I sense you're asking the former, but I want to make sure. I am the former. Exactly. Okay. So uh, two pieces that your listeners need to know about me. One you've already, uh, you've already alluded to in the fact is that I've been to graduate school multiple times. The, the piece that, that we've just touched on, but I haven't really said much uh, in particular about, is that I grew up in a really violent household. And that means that I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which means that uh, I, uh, you can look up CPTSD and you can sort of get some of the symptoms and, and get a, a gloss of what I'm about to say. In certain situations of stress, I have the ability to hyper-focus. And in that hyper-focus, I have the ability to, at least for a short period of time, imprint things with almost photographic quality. I don't have a photographic memory, but I do have under certain stressful situations, the, abil the ability to pay attention uh, at, a, at an extraordinary, extraordinary level. When I was in graduate school, I discovered this as a kind of uh, stupid superpower. And what I mean is I found that if I could put myself into states of stress, I could I could basically photographically remember a book for about 48 to 72 hours. Oh, wow. And then I could, I could get into a, get into a conversation with someone about that book and look like I was a whiz kid. Now I, I actually had a couple colleagues that did have photographic memory and they scared the pants off me, but I, I was, I was able to ape it enough that I could, I could really kind of hold my own in certain kind of, and graduate school sometimes can be a very cutthroat situation. And so I, I really leveraged this, but it took a severe physical cost because in order to be in that state of stress, you have to do some things to your neurochemistry and some things to your body chemistry that is not good in the long term. So th this had some pretty severe health consequences that I've, I've tried to kind of uh, uh, heal from in the year since. But discovering that I can do this from a heightened state of stress was useful. Um, Can you give an example so, of, of physically what you would do? I'm, I, I know if I was listening to this, I would be mad if I didn't ask that question. Sure, sure. Okay, so let me let me not. I mean, part of it had to do with like sleep deprivation and uh, and and other sorts of approaches to um, intoxicants that I'm 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 not comfortable sort of saying is a good way to go. Let me talk about how I do it now. Okay, great. And 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 so this really is how the sausage gets made and I don't ever really talk about this with people because it it makes it sound like I'm not morally serious about my conversations. So when I sit down to have a an interview with a person, uh usually about two and a half hours before we're set to start rolling tape, I start reading the book. And I read the book 
cover to cover, usually two to three hundred pages within that two hour period. And uh, I've got a I've got a book right here. Listeners won't be able to see this, but uh, you'll see that I have a lot of kind of little uh, 3M story flags that kind of are all on, on the pages. What I'm doing in that particular moment is I'm leveraging the fact that there's a deadline and that I have to get this thing done. That begins to create the kind of heightened cortisol in my brain that allows for that really uh, uh, capture memory uh, process to take over. And for the period of the, of the interview, I can then, in that conversation, uh, begin to have a conversation with this person with almost total recall of their book. Um, but it's really only for the space of about that conversation and, and, and you know, pretty much the day after I'd be able to do that. And then pretty much, you know, by a week later, I've not only have forgotten the book, but all, oftentimes I've forgotten even anything that we talked about in that conversation. It's really weird how the memory works for this. But my... Uh, and, and part of this also has to do with the fact that at the time that I began Things Not Seen, I was having trouble even with handwriting, as I mentioned before. So mapping out questions in advance really was a non-starter for me because it involved writing. So I had to develop a process that was entirely based on uh, rapid recollection and oral communication. And uh, and. And that really is the basis even now of how I do this. Now, it's, it's modified over the years, but, but that's, that kind of core has always been the same. The other piece that works to this and to my advantage is because we're on a radio clock, uh, the show is divided up into three roughly 20-minute segments, and each of those segments is further subdivided by half. So at any given moment, I'm only having to have a conversation with someone that is roughly seven to ten minutes long. And what I say to myself is I can be interested in anything for seven to 10 minutes. And so I can be incredibly fascinated with whatever we're doing for seven to 10 minutes. And then we get a chance to reset and I get my brain to kind of go in a different direction. So I really try and create these conversations like conversations. I want to listen very deeply to what the person is saying. I want to make sure that I've clarified, you know, their points and, and, and from the clarification of those points, usually something new will come out that will tie into something that I've got from the book. And, and usually, you know, a 300-page book, you can't really talk about in an hour. You can only talk about certain highlights. You can only get certain key pieces. And I get enough of those in my reading and in my preparation that I can, I can oftentimes, in the process of them giving an answer to a question, ref reference something specifically that they've said in the book, and that usually gives us a way as well to kind of uh, angle in. So what I want to say to you and to the listeners is this is a very idiosyncratic process. It is one that is attempting to take very seriously the work that has gone into creating this book uh, or this, this project, whatever it is that we're talking about. But I style myself in the conversation as what I call an informed ignoramus, which means that I will oftentimes allow myself to ask questions that will make it seem like I haven't understood the book or I haven't read it um, because I want to give opportunities for them to clarify points or for them to give opportunities to, uh, to really... Um, to really uh, have a chance to go deep in what they're saying. Let me say one more thing about this, because there have been times when I've had the opportunity to interview people that have been on my radar for years. And the, the, the one particular person that I can think of is uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong. And I remember years back in, in, in seminary, 
coming across some of the works of John Shelby Spong and just absolutely having a conniption fit, you know, why Christianity must change or die, pissed me off at the time. So I was like, if I ever get the chance to talk to him, I'm going to ask him this question and this question and this question and this question. I had the chance to talk to Bishop Spong twice uh, before he passed away as an interviewer on Things Not Seen. And both times I... I realized that if I went in with that kind of agenda, it would totally blow the ethics of what I was trying to do in the show. And so even though I had two chances to talk to him, there are questions that I have wanted to ask him for over a decade that I didn't ask him because they were jackass questions. Mm. And they were, they were questions that would have completely changed the tenor of what I want things not seen to be, which is, a case, which is a place where there's not an antagonistic conversation. We can still disagree, but the disagreement is coming out naturally and, and, and organically from the conversation and from our clarifying our various points, but not from me going in with some agenda saying, I'm going to score points on this person. So hopefully that begins to give you a sense. I, I will I will say one other thing because you asked about uh, how things have changed over the 10 years I've been doing the show. Because of the way that I produce the show, I have the incredible luxury of getting to choose every single person that I talk to. So I will say that almost without exception, the conversations that I've had have been irenic conversations, conversations that have been peaceful in their in their core nature, because they have been people that I've wanted to talk to. And it has been a, a, a situation that I have wanted to be in. I turn away so many pitches, people, you know, I'm on the radar of a lot of people, and I'm on a lot of lists, and people are continually sending me um, pitches. And there have been many times, they never get to air, but there have been many times when I've responded to emails and other pitches saying, listen, I'm not going to talk to this person. They're a bigot. And I really encourage you to think and pray about the way that you're spending your life and making your choices because you're allying yourself with people who are not morally serious. Like I, I do have off, off air, I have those conversations all the time. And I will say that the, the pitches that have been sent to me over the years have gotten worse in terms of those that are on that edge. Uh, the... The, the, the desire to have real, deep intellectual engagement with the world is getting worse. If, if this anecdotal set of data that I have is in any way uh, indicative. Um, but uh, but I, I have the luxury of not talking to those folks. Thank you very much for sharing that. That process is fascinating. And it works. Uh, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. Like your show is, is tight. It's great. You're an excellent interviewer. I, I love... And you use this phrase several times, and I've, I've already used it myself this time, and I plan on stealing more from you. Uh, you ask, you know, you, you will say something that they've said, but you make sure you're very careful to clarify it or give them the opportunity to clarify it. Like if I'm misrepresenting what you said or if I've said it with a different slant or angle or if I'm not getting it correctly, uh, I love that technique. And uh, it's very fair. The show's great, bottom line. Well, thank you for those kind words. If I may say two things about that, Please. Uh, just to make sure that your listeners are, are following. So one piece is, and this, for for a number of reasons that we don't need to get into here, this has been life-saving for me, but there's, there's a, a technique that my wife and I learned from a couples counselor, but I've come to understand it, it has multiple names in the psychological and in the spiritual, uh, in the spiritual uh, direction community. It's called either reflective listening or the Imago technique. But basically it is an attempt when you're in conversation, when someone says something to you, particularly something that has a lot of emotional weight, your job in that moment is simply to say back to them exactly what you've just heard without giving it any kind of rephrasing or re-narration at all, and then saying, is there more about that? And when the, when the couples counselor said this to us, she said, this is going to be the most boring thing in the world, but trust me, it works. And it really, 
it, it, it helped to recreate a kind of set of emotional connections in me and a trust with my spouse that has been life-saving. Like, I, I know that I'm not going to get my story told back to me in a way that is alien to me. And so I really, in, in all my interactions with my family, but also with my guests and with, with anyone that I'm talking to, I'm always trying to do that. Am I hearing you the way that you want to be heard? Like, that, that's, that's a, an essential and core part of this. Um, and and when, we're, when we're sort of in that space of really clarifying, uh, it allows you to do something that the, forgive the term, it's called steel manning. So if you, if you ever have heard of making an argument and you create sort of the worst possible case for your argumentative partner, that's called a straw man. And so the, the intention here is not ever to create a straw man, but rather to make sure that I've heard the strongest possible position with the most clarity where the person says, yes, that's what I mean. And then if I take issue with it, I'm taking issue with the best that they've got. I'm not undercutting them or, or uh, pushing against them. And so it's an attempt to really hear people, but also to hear them in the best possible case of their argument that they could make. I absolutely love that. Tell me about the Francis Effect podcast. So uh, when I was in a transition year, I had left academia at one point uh, because my wife got a job here in Chicago. And then I ran a nonprofit for a number of years here in Chicago. And then as I transitioned out of that nonprofit and was figuring out what to do next and was sort of launching the media company that I run where I, I produce audio for other people, I took a year and worked at Catholic Theological Union, which was a wonderful experience because, first of all, it was a school that was literally a four-minute walk from my house. And the president was a friend of mine, and I had worked with him as the head of a nonprofit. And they had a, a job posting for a low-level person in their communications department. And I said, you know, can I come and just work here for a year and you don't have to pay me what I'm worth. You can just pay me what the salary is and it'll give me a chance to kind of decompress and figure out my next steps. But it'll be a steady job. It'll bring in income and it'll give me a chance to like help out a school that I love. And so that was a wonderful thing. But one of the one of the added bonuses of that was the uh, incredible faculty at Catholic Theological Union, among whom at the time was a Franciscan friar and priest by the name of Daniel P. Haran. And Dan and I became sort of acquaintances and then fast friends. And the culture at Catholic Theological Union is when you eat lunch, you go into the main atrium and you all sit around big round tables and you just have conversations with who's ever sitting at the table. And at one point, Dan and I were talking about podcasting because I was doing podcasting and he had, he had been a podcaster off and on through his, his time. And at one point I said, well, if you'd ever want to do a podcast about Catholic stuff, I'd love to do that with you. And he said, let me think about that. And I don't know whether it was a couple days later or a couple weeks later, but either way, we had some more conversations and we hatched out this notion that what would it be like if we did a show that was similar to uh, the, the kind of things coming out of Crooked Media, which he was a big fan of and I was just getting into at the time. So stuff like Pod Save America, where you take you know two or three issues from topical news and you put them through, I mean, in Pod Save America's case, it's a kind of liberal lens. In my, it, What I was pitching to Father Dan was, what if we put that through a lens of Catholic faith? And not just, and again, to, to really give people the idea that Catholicism isn't just what they're seeing from the bishops, 
but rather, you know, I'm a person who has theological training. You're a person who has not only theological training, but also you have the, the, the title of being a priest. You know, we both have studied canon law. We have some background in this. Can we really have some interesting conversations? And so we, we hammered out a deal of how we were going to kind of manage the intellectual property of this, and we just started. And now we've, we're in the midst of, I think, our 12th season, and we do, we do two seasons a year. So that means we've been at it for about six years. And uh, about three seasons ago, we, we added in a third voice, uh, Heidi Schlumpf, who is the, uh, she's the executive editor of National Catholic Reporter, which is a more progressive-leaning uh, Catholic publication and I mean, it, it, the conversations are wonderful. I learned so much. And what I really appreciate about it is all the listeners who write in and say that for better or for worse, we're a lifeline for them, for them staying in the church or figuring out a way to navigate the church if they're in a particular parish or a particular diocese that is more conservative or what have you. They find that our commentary gives them a, a, a kind of way of reconnecting to faith uh, that is very healthy and helpful for them. And so I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what all the impact is. I don't actually get a chance to see what all the impact is, but I really do feel like the Holy Spirit, I don't want to get too highfalutin about this, but I feel like the Holy Spirit has had a hand in all of this because it has been so wonderful and so easy to work with Heidi and Father Dan and the, the fruits that come of it have been so good for my own soul. And from the sound of it, from the, for the souls of our listeners. Uh, again, I don't want to oversell what's going on, but I, I feel like it's an, it's a good and important thing that we're doing. And it's a very entertaining podcast, even for someone who's not coming for, through that lens. I enjoyed everything I listened to. Uh, I want to talk about one more topic real quick. And then, uh, then I want to talk about the movie because I absolutely love this yeah. movie. Uh, I want to talk about Twitter just for really briefly uh, because you said something in an interview that I found fascinating, and I would love for you to expand on that. Well, maybe not expand on that. Uh, maybe repeat yourself on this one uh, about how your interactions on social media have actually influenced your in-person uh, interactions. Do you know what I'm talking and, about uh, in that or no? I, I I do know what you're talking about, and I'm happy to speak to that. For folks who would like a more in-depth uh, treatment of this. There's a, a chapter I did for a book called Philosophers and Theologians Using Social Media, which was edited by Aaron Simmons and some other folks. Um, but uh, it's, it's basically, I am neurodivergent, and I also was raised in an antagonistic household where arguing, like sometimes violent arguing, was the currency. And then I went into a series of academic contexts where arguing verbally violently was the currency. And so I came out of all of that experience and training a really horrible person. <laughs> and, uh, and I did not have good interpersonal social skills for any number of reasons. And when I, when I was traveling through my life, I have lost several friends along the way because of that uh, belligerence and antagonism. And, and I, I was deeply affected by those losses. A couple of those losses have been able to be repaired, but a number of them have not been. And so any time that I was um, getting into a situation where, where things were, were kind of getting cut off with my social life, I took notice because I, I remembered how painful it was to lose someone dear to me. 
And then social media happened midway through, uh, you know, my my graduate program. I was I was at my PhD program, and uh, that was really when Facebook was starting to get a hold on several college campuses, including Vanderbilt. And I I jumped in with both feet, and the interactions it became very easy to be really snide and cutting very quickly. And so part of this was learned on Facebook where I, I ended up getting invited into interactions and using my, my well-trained skills. Like I think of Wolverine from the comic books. I'm very good at what I do, but what I do is not very nice. <laughs> people would call me in. People would call me into social media debates to be like, okay, tear him a new one doll. Right. And I would, You're the heavy. yeah, I, I was the heavy and that uh, to quote uh, Henry Nowen, that began to have a deleterious effect on my soul. Uh, and I, I really was paying attention to uh, what it was doing to me to have uh, that kind of interaction with people. And I was also noticing that certain people were withdrawing from me on social media. And so I began to create a different persona. Uh, I think a lot and, and have written a little bit about David Bowie and how David Bowie would sort of uh, take one persona and inhabit it for a while and then lay it down and then try on a different character. And so I, I just decided to kind of David Bowie my way out of this. And I was like, what if I, what if I invented, and let me take two steps back. When I was using music and the per performance of music as therapy, I was, I was a character on stage. I was Dave Dalt. And when I was off stage, I was David Dalt. Dave Dalt on stage was the the boundary crossing madman with an acoustic guitar. David Dalt off stage was a very cowardly and hurt, hurting person who was trying to figure out how to be a better person. They were two distinctly different people. And I, I thought of that very consciously when I was performing. And so that informed how I thought about getting back on Facebook. What if I create a persona on Facebook that is actually able to have decent, in-depth, uh, peaceful conversations that actually lead to more light than heat. And so I started trying to do that. And I, I, for a, a number of years, I, I, I curated the walls of my Facebook pages with that kind of salon atmosphere where I was sort of bringing and inviting people who were disagreeing into a conversation. And I was helping to moderate a conversation that was moving things I thought in a more generous and general direction. Um, and what I discovered was, as I did that, I became a better person in my interpersonal life, that the character that I was learning to be in social media was affecting the person that I was in social space and, and to positive ends, not negative ones. And so I leaned into that and I really began to theorize that and think about that. And uh, like all of that was good. There was a breaking point for Facebook and me in, in the early part of the Trump administration. And uh, listeners may remember that there was a point where uh, it was the, the, the March for Life uh, that happens in Washington, D.C., and there was an interaction between uh, a Native American protester who was playing a drum and a, a kid from a Catholic school wearing a MAGA hat and the face off between them. Uh, if you don't remember that, I, I forget the name of the school and I forget the name of any of the, of the people in it, but I remember how it affected me because in the wake of that, I watched my Facebook pages cleft in two. I, I watched, I watched, it was like the parting of the Red Sea where there was, there was a, a, 
a distinct and different world that the two the two spheres of antagonism that I had been trying to hold together for a number of years just really parted ways. And I found myself really faced with a moral choice. And I was like, I, I can't in good conscience stand with the people that are standing with the people in the MAGA hats. I, I found that to be a, a point of uh, that I couldn't cross and that I, I needed to reassess the way I was trying to maintain friendships across that divide. And so I, I stepped away from that persona and I stepped away from Facebook. And that was the point where I really began to uh, become more involved with Twitter. And on Twitter, I have a very different persona. And I, I, am, I am inhabiting a different character on Twitter than I inhabited on Facebook. I don't really have the energy to be that person on Facebook anymore in the same way that I don't, I don't have the energy to get on stage and be the acoustic madman anymore. Um, and so Twitter serves a, a bunch of different purposes for me. It's a place uh, in my, in my uh, email signature for my work, I have a little note that says the place that I really think best is on Twitter. And that's true because Twitter has allowed me a space where I can engage with people very quickly. I can get feedback very quickly, but also it, it, is, it has encouraged me to atomize my thinking. So the character limits have made me very, very good at distilling whatever it is down to a, a, an atomistic idea. And to build those atomistic ideas together to something bigger, yes, but to really think about how, how can I say this not in the way that I was trained to do it, which is with the biggest words and with the longest sentences with the most clauses, but rather how can I simplify, how can I clarify, and how can I make sure that I'm being understood by people that don't have any of my context. So that's been incredibly good for my thinking. And so oftentimes what will happen is I'll get into an engagement on Twitter or I'll, I'll do a, a thread on Twitter, and I'll then go back and copy and paste that into some other capture format where I start to develop those ideas and those become part of larger projects. Uh, I enjoy following you on Twitter a lot. And that is kind of where we became reacquainted. I don't remember how it came up, but I am uh, I love it. And if it's okay with you, uh, I would like to just read a couple of your tweets. And this goes sure. against everything you just said. Uh, but maybe if you would explain just slightly and because of time, just only, only slightly, just because I think they're fascinating. And I would love to hear a little bit more. Uh, the first one is, Jesus is a black trans woman. Okay. I say this a lot, and I, I have come to the point where it has moved from a corrosive joke to something that I actually uh, adhere to as part of my theological comportment. So in Matthew 25, Jesus says right at the end of that chapter, that uh, it, it's the sheep and goats thing. In case, sometimes people are like, where, where is this in Matthew 25? So I'm just going to tell you explicitly. It's, it's towards the end. It's the sheep and goats discourse. And where basically Jesus is asked, when did we see you? And Jesus says, when you saw the people who were sick, when you saw the people who were in jail, when you saw the people who were immigrants, when you saw the widow and the orphan, that's where you saw me. And when you failed to help those people, you failed to help me. Love that. So James... Yeah, James Cone, the theologian, does a really amazing thing with this in his early books, like uh, Black Theology of Liberation um, and, and Black Theology of Black Power, where he reads Matthew 25 and he says, okay, so Jesus chose to show up and said that Jesus would identify with the vulnerable in Matthew 25. And at that time, it looked like a, a, a Palestinian Jewish person on the outskirts of Roman Empire. That was, that was the vulnerable person that Jesus chose to show up as then. 
who would Jesus choo choose to show up as in, you know, 1950s, 1960s America? Well, the most unwanted person, the person that those with access to violence wish would disappear is a black male. So right now for James Cone, reading Matthew 25 in that same lens, Jesus was a black man. And so G saying that Jesus is black became a theological, not just a political statement. And I, I've, I've had a, a long journey with James Cone, but I'm now convinced by that line of argumentation. Well, since the beginning of 2023, there have already been four black trans women who have been murdered. Uh, you don't know their names because they aren't often talked about on the news because they are the people that we don't want to see. If you think about who our society, those particularly with access to violence in our society, wish would disappear, they wish that people who are uh, who don't fit the kind of heteronormative patriarchal senses of sexuality, they wish that gay people, LGBTQ people would disappear. Among those, who do they most wish would disappear right now? Well, the laws right now that are being put in, in more than half the states are specifically designed against uh, trans persons. And of those, the people that we know who are most under threat of violence are trans persons of color, and in particular trans persons of color who have made the male to female transition. So if we want to find who Jesus is going to be right now in this moment, if we want to know where Jesus promised to show up. So Jesus, you know, for a Catholic, Jesus shows up in the cracker. Great. We know that Jesus is there. But if we're going to go out into the world, not in the Eucharist, and find out where Jesus has promised to show up, the place where Jesus has promised to be, Matthew 25 says, whoever those with access to violence wish would disappear and have the power to make disappear, that's where Jesus chooses to be without fail. And so right now in our particular culture and our society, that is a black trans woman. And so I say unequivocally, absolutely, as a matter of faith, Jesus is a black trans woman, and that that is how I think about Jesus right now. Right now when I think about a savior, because my savior is not going to come from a white, powerful man. My saving is not going to come from someone with access to violence. My savior is going to be someone who is there at the margin, at the people that we wish would disappear, operating to make the world better from, from, that, from that standpoint. It makes me smile every time you do. Tweet number two, the only purpose of a Bible is to get you to fall in love with the people around you. So many of us get this backwards, and we mistakenly think the only purpose of the people around us is to get them to fall in love with the Bible. This is a very recent insight that I've had, but it's been revolutionary for me. Um, so I've been thinking about, as part of some of the writing that I've been doing, kind of what a, what a Bible is for, how we talk about the objects that we call Bibles, and one of the things that, uh, that a larger project has played with is the idea of accessorization. So I'm working on a book for Yale called The Accessorized Bible. And accessory oftentimes is a word that we use in fashion. And so if you think about uh, Coco Chanel and the little black dress, Coco Chanel famously said, look in the mirror, take one thing off, and then you're ready to go. So accessorization, either by adding something like a brooch or, or something in your hair or taking something away. That's oftentimes how we think about accessorization. But there's another way to think about accessorization, and that is when we talk in a legal sense about the accessory to a crime. So a crime has been committed and someone has stand by and either aided that uh, materially by supporting the actions that led to the crime, or they have been accessories to it by knowing that the crime was happening, but choosing not to intervene. And so I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for a Bible to be accessorized and an, and an, an accessory. 
And so in one sense, the Bible can be part of our fashion accessorization. It can make us look good, make us look better by having one. Um, but also the Bible functions as an accessory to our crimes. When we go and we beat up the vulnerable, when we attack those that don't have the, the power to protect themselves, we are accessories to a crime that the Bible is authorizing. And we believe that somehow the Bible has told us to do, to do this as if a book could have a will about what we do in the first place and not the interpreters reading that book. And so I'm realizing now that I have a very distinct way of saying that the Bible must be read. I think it must be read in a morally serious way, which means that those who are most vulnerable get to say how we interpret it and how we act towards them. The, the, the other piece of this is if I tell you that I'm loving you, and you tell me very clearly, the actions that you're doing that you say are loving are hurting me, please stop. And I say, I won't stop because I'm loving you. You just don't know that I'm loving you. I'm actually not loving you. I'm hurting you and I'm gaslighting you. And so the notion somehow that somebody who I'm interacting with gets to say whether or not I'm loving towards them. My enemy and the poor are the ones that get to say whether or not I'm actually Christian. It's not a label that I can hold on myself. It's something that the most vulnerable and the people least likely to like me have to be able to say about me because of my actions towards them. That's, that's the hook that we're on. And so if that's the case, then the only proper way to read this Bible, if our desire is to be Christian, is to read it in such a way that those around us feel safer. And that those around us, particularly the vulnerable and particularly the people that I wish would disappear, my enemies, get to say, I flourish more because of the way that you're reading this book. So that becomes the only proper way, in my understanding, to read the Bible. We, can, we, we definitely read it in a bunch of other ways where we become accessories to violence and we become accessory even to, to murder or to, to genocide. But that, I would suggest, doesn't lead to Christian ends. The Christian ends are the ones where our, our enemy and the poor, the vulnerable, those that we wish would disappear, look and say, I'm safer because of the way that you're reading this. So that's, that's the insight that I've come to just recently, and I'm just beginning to flesh that out. But so often, instead, we think about all the people around us as if they are somehow non-player characters in a drama where we're the hero, and it's our job to make sure that they all fall in love with our reading of this book. That's not it at all. Our job is to fall in love with the people around us. And if we aren't reading the Bible towards that end, we're reading it freaking wrong. I love that. And one last one. And this is a paraphrase. I couldn't find this recently. Uh, so this may not be the exact quote. Uh, my regular reminder to myself that no one owes me a follow, a listen, or an audience. Yeah. So... Yeah, you've got it basically right. Nobody owes me a platform, nobody owes me a conversation, and nobody owes me a follow. So I am an egotistical person, and I, I oftentimes think that I am the hero of the story and the only protagonist worth talking about, which means that when I see other people uh, having a good day on social media, I get jealous. And particularly when I see people coming out with books and other people talking about those books, or when I see people coming out with projects, you know, people who, who, who come out with, uh, with, a with a podcast and I've been working on my podcast for 10 years and it, it, it's slowly growing its audience, but suddenly they have thousands and thou thousands of, of followers. And, and it looks like they're getting just incredible engagement. I get really jealous. And so it's anytime that I do that, I have now a protocol that says now's my time to remind myself publicly that it is not about me. And so I need to remind myself publicly that nobody owes me a follow. 
nobody owes me a conversation and nobody owes me a platform. That's not what I'm here for. I'm part of an ecosystem and I'm, I'm here to be a part of, of a thriving and various ecosystem. But if I become too big, actually I'm going to choke out other things and that's not my job. My job is to help make sure that other things sustain and thrive, which means I get to do my thing in relative obscurity and that's okay. And I get to do it the way that I want to. And that's also okay. Um, but, but I can't get highfalutin about this and imagine that somehow I'm owed some kind of living from doing this, or I'm owed some kind of accolade from doing this. It's just not, that's not part of the equation. I'm a punk rocker and a little club and I'm never going to be in a stadium. And that's the way I like it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you sharing your work and your life, life with us. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about F for fake by Orson Welles. Hello, everyone. Just a quick break before we begin discussion of F for Fake by Orson Welles. If you have not seen the movie, I highly recommend pausing the podcast and watching the movie first. It's 88 minutes. I watched it on the Criterion channel. I know it's available there. I believe it can also be rented from Amazon. Um, I think you'll get more out of the podcast if you have seen the movie. And I think you will get more to the movie if you have not listened to the podcast. So do what you will, but that is my recommendation. Thanks. David, will you tell me a little bit about this movie you're introducing me to? So the movie is called F for Fake. And depending on how you measure it, it's the last movie that Orson Welles directed or the last movie that Orson Welles produced. It's not the last movie that Orson Welles was a part of. Uh, there's a couple of unfinished films out there. And also he lent his voice to a Transformers movie uh, that came out, you know, after he after he passed away. But this is the last film where he really had creative control and had a, a kind of a real hand in the vision of its completion. And for those that don't know Orson Welles, he was uh, an auteur's auteur. He is oftentimes credited with being the director of the greatest film ever made, Citizen Kane. And that, certainly we could have a conversation about that. But then very quickly, he became a pariah in Hollywood. And part of it was from his own personality and part of it was from his own self-undermining. Uh, and I can relate to this. He is a person who had a great deal of difficulty finishing film projects. He, has, he had a lot of vision, but he didn't oftentimes have the courage to actually say the thing is done because he always would kind of want to go back and tinker some more and tinker some more. And that made him uh, on the outs in Hollywood, and then he fled to Europe for his later career and failed to make movies in Europe. So uh, you know, <laughs> failed to make movies in Hollywood, so he went to Europe to make movies and failed to make movies there. But he, he lived a very rich and robust life and towards the end of his life, he was frequenting a small island called Ibiza, and there was kind of a rogues gallery of uh, aristocrats and miscreants in Ibiza that he managed to kind of overlap with. And so he, he discovered this group of people who had fled the law for one reason or another, and some of them were deciding that they wanted to tell the other people's stories. And so he came across a filmmaker who had shot a bunch of footage about an art forger by the name of Elmer Doré. 
And, uh, and in the process of that, he also became friends with another person by the name of Clifford Irving, who uh, supposedly came out with a biography of the inventor Howard Hughes, which Howard Hughes later disavowed. So apparently he was writing a fake biography. And Orson Welles was initially approached, as I understand it, by the person who had shot all of the footage of Elmer Doré saying, can you help me put this together? And Wells said, I think I can do something even more with this. And so Wells began to travel, as he traveled around and visited other cities, the story is that he would go and he would have a hotel room for himself, and he'd also have a hotel room dedicated to the Moviola, which was an old school analog movie editing machine. And he was working on editing this film and putting together this found footage and putting together... uh, this other footage that he shot and an other narration and other kind of clips from things. And somebody asked him, you know, are you working on a documentary? And Wells said, it's not a documentary. It's an entirely new kind of film. It's a personal essay in film form. And so it, it really anticipates a lot of things that we now take for granted, like the video essay on YouTube or the assembly of found footage or the, the real kind of, uh, questioning of how a documentary works with narrative truth all those things are anticipated with and played with in this movie f for fake it's got levels upon levels upon levels and the first time that i saw it it blew me away and as soon as it was done i said i have to watch it again and i watch it again and again i I watch it regularly because i constantly am finding new things in the layers new ways in which he's tricked me because this is a movie about faking and about faking faking and about how we think about real life that is endlessly worth talking about. Your reaction, the right when it ended, you wanted to start again, is exactly what I did. And then I've heard other people say that as well. Uh, one of the beauties of the conceit of this podcast is that I admit that I'm ignorant and that I had no idea that basically he was he is one of the pioneers basically of independent guerrilla filmmaking. The way he put this together is insane. And the multiple projects that he would have, editing more than one at a time, I uh, I had no idea. I knew Citizen Kane. I knew the Mercury Theater. I knew more of the worlds, or I thought I knew. But I had no idea um, how much of uh, just a, a rebel he was and how he was constantly working and constantly trying to get his projects uh, uh, done in a way – where he would shoot for a year or shoot for two weeks, take off a year, raise money, and then go shoot for another two weeks. I had no idea like that, you know, one of the greatest auteurs we have in film was operating under that. What is your origin story with this movie? How did you find it? So when I was in graduate school, uh, there were a couple of really good hip places where you could find kind of good films to watch. And so, you know, because... Nashville, Nashville is a town with many different overlapping uh, communities, but around Vanderbilt, there was a really kind of highbrow, artsy community. And so uh, the Tower Records <laughs> at the time had a really good uh, video rental department, both uh, old school VHS tapes, but also DVDs. And one day I happened upon this DVD F for fake at the tower records. And I rented it because I I would rent probably six or eight movies a week because my brain was just in a weird space at the time. And I, I went home and I watched it and then I watched it again because I was like this, how can I say it? I felt like this was the film I had been waiting for. 
I felt like this was the film that really opened up for me what film could do in terms of understanding um, and in terms of all of the, the different kind of philosophies I had studied and all the, all the different kind of ideas I was playing with in graduate school seemed to be encapsulated in this film. It was, you know, there, there are points where when you listen, for example, to the work of David Bowie, and David Bowie will be sort of talking about a song that is a pop song, but he's thinking about bringing in the methodology of William S. Burroughs and the cut-up technique, or he's bringing in uh, some kind of Brechtian character, or he's, or he's thinking about, uh, you know, um, He's thinking about the death of the author and uh, Roland Barthes kind of work and things like that. Like all this stuff is playing behind the scenes. And and yet the thing that Bowie produces is incredibly entertaining. That's the way I felt about F for Fake. Like Wells is playing in a in a very deep pool. I'm only seeing the beach ball on the surface, but I can't take my eyes away from that beach ball because it's so interesting. But I want to dive into the pool. That's kind of how I felt. That's completely uh, that's uh, I felt the exact same way. Um, I don't know how exactly we want to talk about this film, but I, I, I know it can be, we can break it down into how it is structured, which I think is fascinating and what he is setting up. And, and the movie opens with this charming um, sequence where Orson Welles is doing a magic trick to a young boy. Fat man in a tux and a hat doing tricks for a kid. How can you go wrong? <laughs> Yeah. And it, again, like what what kind of persona is Wells presenting to the viewer there? Like Wells is in the, and so for those that don't know Orson Wells, like he was he was a force of nature in the in the media world in the beginning of his career. And he he managed to like tear up radio, he tore up theater and then he tore up Hollywood like nothing could stop him. But then something shifted, and by the end of his career, he was a laughingstock. He was a fat man kind of being lampooned for doing wine commercials and getting drunk while he was doing the wine commercials. And so I feel like in that particular moment at the outset of the film, Wells is acknowledging and inhabiting all of the things that we're saying about him. He's, 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 he's presenting us with the laughingstock. Look, I'm a fat man in a tux and a hat doing tricks for kids. In this fun, let's just let's get it out of the way. You're going to laugh at me, but in the process, he gets us on his side, and he, and by by inhabiting that, he allows us then to trust him again, and what he's doing. And and to me, I think that his his way of anticipating the audience and and. I say this because I've seen some interviews with Wells and they're not they're not politically correct. He uses some horrible language in these interviews, but there's one particular interview uh, that he does with Dinah Shore on the Dinah Shore show where Wells is talking about the way in which he thinks about audiences. And he he actually points at the audience in the in the theater at the Dinah Shore show and he says, "You're not a real audience. You are performers just like I'm a performer, just like Dinah's a performer. Your job and this is why you got free tickets to be here and you understand that your job is to make us look good. A real audience throws things at you." And so he, and he says, I've been in front of real audiences where I didn't know I was going to get out with my with my skin intact. And so Wells is thinking very, very deeply about what an audience is and how an audience will react and what an audience in that particular time anticipating his his performance there 
would be doing. Now, he did also misjudge the audience because he thought that F for Fake was going to be a big hit, and it wasn't. Um, but but in terms of, of looking back now, how he thought about himself presenting himself, I think it's it's utterly brilliant. And I love how when Wells was younger, he was magic was something that he was interested in, something that he practiced and uh, something that he was fascinated by. And I, I don't remember what documentary it was, but it talks about him going to see, well, I think it was Houdini, actually, who had just a profound effect on on what he, um, of, of the happiness and the, the mystery of life. Uh, and he, that he kind of carried that forward. And I think in one of the commentaries, it talked about that boy, you know, kind of standing in for Orson when he was young, which I kind of love. Uh, well, a, ma a magician creates a false reality and makes you fall in love with that false reality. And what else is a filmmaker but that? That's right. And in Picasso and Orson and other people have said this, you know, like fiction is the lie that brings you to the truth. You know, and I, I love that that plays on just several different layers. So we have this scene, this opening at, at this, uh, you know, gorgeous train station. And then he kind of cuts into immediately to what we're, well, he, he teases Oda, Oya, Oya, Oya. Sorry about that. Oya Kodar, yeah. his girlfriend at the time. That's right. So he teases her and then he just, you know, like, we'll get back to her later. And I love it. And he, I'm instantly like charmed by this man. I didn't expect to just be like, oh, I just want to hang out. Yeah, let's just talk. Let's do this. But he is ridiculously charming. And um, the way, what's the, I mean, there's a word. I'm, uh, he brings you in. Like, I feel like, like this is just for me and him and I are just going to have this like kind of cool experience together, you know. He, he gains your confidence and then he makes you a very rock solid promise. That's right. That's exactly right. He says for the next hour, everything you see will be true or at least best in fact. And even right when, when the first yeah. time I'm like, well, that's great, but this film's longer than an hour. <laughs> you know, like, that's a good promise, but this isn't, uh, you know, a drama on, on network TV. This is a movie and this is a feature length film. So that I love that he says that. And also I love that he knows the audience is going to be like, well, that's great, but this is going to be longer than an hour. Well, it's an outright lie as well. And I can I can give you two concrete examples of how it's OK. A lie. Okay, so he during that hour where he says that everything that is that you're going to see is based in solid fact and is and is factual. So there's a point where he he references that radio drama, the the War of the Worlds, and you hear some of the uh, you hear some of the dialogue from the War of the Worlds. Well, thanks to some friends of mine when I was in high school, I grew up listening to old time radio drama, and I grew up listening among other things to the War of the Worlds. The audio that you hear is not actually from the the broadcast of the war of the world it's it's complete it's looped it's fake it's fake and and so that that's one that's one particular moment where he is bringing in verisimilitude the feeling of being real but it's not real it's not actually documentary you know audio from that broadcast that infamous broadcast it's reproduced recreated and the dialogue is not the same as from the broadcast but the other and this is one of my favorite moments in the film he's sitting in a restaurant a parisian restaurant and he's having this conversation he's got friends all around him and but he's also talking to the camera and he's discoursing about these big highfalutin ideas and he's got this big plate of food in front of him and he doesn't like the food and he says please take this away and bring me the steak au poivre 
Well, somebody actually did the research and figured out that that restaurant doesn't serve steak au poire. Oh, shut up. It doesn't oh. serve the dish that he asks for. <laughs> and and so he he is presenting to the to the viewer again a persona of himself as this person who like is willing to like work through one entire dish of food and then ask for an entire another dish of food but there's but there's no possibility that what he's asking for is actually going to be brought to him it's all artifice it's fake all the way down i love that about this film. i love like the more that you dig into the details the more that you discover that everything is fabricated i absolutely love that also I uh, heard that, uh, again, because he is a guerrilla filmmaker at this point, that he is sitting at this table because he was being interviewed for German TV. And he said he would only do the interview if they left their light set up. And so Francois, uh, or Gary, the, 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 the not, not, well, Francois, everybody too, because he was at the table also, but Gary Graver's outside with the, the camera, the cinematographer on this, just waiting and as soon as like the reporters leave, they all come in and they just film the scene, which is what like what I was doing when I was twenty two. You know, like but this is Orson Welles doing it. It's just um, I absolutely love it. I love that scene. I love and this is one of the examples of just the editing in this movie is just fantastic, and it, it does, everything moves so quickly. But the spilling of the wine, the dabbing of the wine behind the ears for good luck which I don't know if that's a real thing or not, but I, I want to do it now because I want to be like Orson Welles. Um, it's just fantastic. I love, I absolutely love that, that scene and the, those parts. Um, we, you've talked about it already, but it, I just wanted to explain it out for the audience, uh, you know, because we have, again, you have this, we have Elmir, we have the faker, the biography of the faker by the faker, now documented by Orson Welles, the faker. Not only is that deliciously fun, what do you take beyond that setup, or if anything? So I take a number of things, and this ties back to several things that we've said earlier in the conversation. So all of these Russian doll collections of fakery are pointing towards a kind of thesis that develops for Wells out of the the process of making the film, and that is... Because we have a certain set of commercial circumstances, because art is a commodity, and art is no longer simply something that is done for pleasure, but it is done now for some instrumental purpose. We have then a vested economic interest in asking what is real art and what, what are we allowed to value? And coming into that space is a kind of social construction called the expert. And the whole point of, of all of this, I think, is for Wells to be able to set up the expert and show how the expert is a buffoon. And to really, to really demonstrate to the audience that most of what we take as solid fact is dependent upon people who have not our interests, but a vested economic interest, their own economic interest at heart, and that we are seen as kind of uh, rubes for their ongoing uh, chicanery, for just their ongoing uh, willingness to fool us because they're participating in this same illusion that, but they happen to have the pride of place in it. Now, how do I think that this uh, connects to things like what we were talking about earlier? So I'm a Catholic and my experts are the bishops. 
and I routinely have the experience as a Catholic who has studied very closely canon law, studied very closely the constitutional documents of the church, the ways in which my experts will inhabit not a space of actually knowing the documents, not actually knowing the texts, not actually being morally serious, but rather using the pomp and circumstance of their office, of their their supposed expertise, as a way of getting other people to be silent. Mm. And and in the same way that I that I find uh, it so delicious, the way that Wells skewers the experts in the art world, I think that that goes to any particular kind of authority. Uh, to quote that great moral sage, the musician Peter Gabriel, when things get so big, I don't trust them at all. You want some control, you got to keep it small. Uh, I really, I really am hesitant to offer anyone my allegiance just because of their supposed expertise. Now, that doesn't mean that I, I mean, I participate in expertise all the time, right? I'm talking to you on a computer that was built by experts. I'm, I, I, I defer to expertise all the time. But also there are moments where it is right and proper to be able to ask whether or not the person who is presenting you the, the conclusion as a, a kind of uh, settled argument has actually done the homework. And if you can demonstrate that they haven't done the homework, then you have a deeper conversation. And so that's what I love so much about F for Fake is they are showing very, very uh, carefully and patiently how the experts have never actually done the homework. And that oftentimes they have simply uh, done a short circuit that has allowed this particular object now to, gra- to gain tremendous, even astronomical value. Right. And, and Clifford Irving, very charmingly, what a, what a good looking and charming man. You know, again, you just yes. like, yes, tell me a story, entertain me. When he talks about, yes. you know, Urbane. the He's Urbane. Yes. yes. Uh, when he talks about the Medellianis and the experts, and this one says it's real for that, and this one's fake for that, and that he's just done, I just I love that kind of moment. And 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 for listeners, like what we're talking about here is Clifford Irving, the supposed biographer of Howard Hughes, who's there in Ibiza part of this community of, again, kind of aristocrats and miscreants, he literally takes down an art history book and he points to a specific painting, which is supposedly a Modigliani, and he says, this is a forgery. And he says, I know it's a forgery because I, I, I forget whether he says that he watched Elmer paint it or he knows that Elmer painted it, but either way, he said, he puts it on record, he points to it, and he says, this is a fake. And that, to me, is one of the wonderful things about this film is that they're not talking in the abstract. They're actually kind of showing you the entire process. My favorite moment in the film is Elmer at the easel and he, you watch him as he actually is painting a painting that looks for all the world like a Modigliani. And then he signs the name Modigliani in the way that Modigliani would, would sign the name. And he says, what a beautiful painting. Shall we burn it? <laughs> and then he puts it in the fire. Like that's, that to me is the thesis of the film. Like we believe that these things are so valuable because of whatever else except the thing itself. And if all those other things are what's important, then why do we even need the thing itself? Let's just burn it. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant moment. in the Yeah, film. it really, really is. And it, it's again, a set up with the, it's pretty, but is it art in the beginning of the film? And then it's set up again because, uh, and I think it was, uh, I think it's Clifford Irving's girlfriend or, or wife at the time. Who, I think she might be the first one to say it like, you know, well, there's a market. 
And you're absolutely right. That's where it started. Once you take this art and we're going to sell it and there is a creation of the market, then experts are necessary to see what it is, that it's art and that it's valuable. And I love both. And listeners, listeners need to understand, listeners need to understand there's a market in politics. There's a market in theology. There's a market in, in any human endeavor right now that overtakes and supplants the actual thing itself. So again, why not burn it? <laughs> and the, um, so, and we do see some of the behind the scenes stuff. And so all this time, so again, so uh, Oya wrote like the girl watching scene, which we haven't talked about. And she writes the last scene, the last sequence kind of that we're going to get to. But um, in between, you know, Wells is putting together all this footage and seeing where the gaps are. And then he is showing himself being interviewed. Like he would apparently edit all, all day, realize where the gap was, and then have Gary Garver come in and film him and feel like come to the B-roll. You see so many shots are like Orson there talking, then looking at the editing machine, and then we go cut inside to the actual footage itself. And it's just done so fast and so seamlessly that it just moves, it just pops, and there's that jazzy score. And you're just kind of dancing around at this great party for these amazing, charming people telling you fascinating stories that have these like four or five different levels to them. I, I, I found, uh, again, I was, I was hooked so quickly. One thing about that is, um, you know, when, when Orson Welles was uh, doing Citizen Kane, uh, he, and he even says this in Citizen Kane, like there's a line where he says, I don't know how to run a newspaper. I just gather people around me who know how to do it. That was very much how he made the film Citizen Kane was he, 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 was a novice who came in and surrounded himself with some brilliant people and really utilized their talents to help to create this amazing artifact. The distinction and the difference between that Orson Welles and the Orson Welles of F for Fake is that he honestly learned how to edit. And he was, he was honestly, it was his hand that was helping to create this flow. And it was his, his sense of rhythm, his sense of vision. He wasn't, leaning over somebody else's shoulder he was he was the person at the wheel i love that growth for him because this is actually a skill that he's showing us he's showing us his mastery of this craft and it shows also that he was paying attention to people like the french new wave he was paying he was paying attention to the ways in which you know someone like jean-luc godard was was also editing film and using these kind of guerrilla techniques but also bringing to it a beauty and a and a mastery that was he just he, he's a master of his craft in this film. That's just really beautiful to watch. I know you'd already told me uh, kind of your favorite uh, moment of the of the film, which I agree is is one of my favorites as well. Uh, I, I, do you have a favorite line? Again, it's not going to be a quote, but is there a? I'm going to share one with you while you think about it. Um, when it's talking about the the kind of the narrative in the beginning, I, this is the kind of example of the charm that kind of sucked me in. It talks about Elmir, and he goes being reformed and exposed in reverse order, and this like just the little wink that he gives you uh, absolutely makes me uh, super happy. Uh, so, I do have a favorite line from the film, but it's not a spoken line. Ooh, I love that. Okay, so so at the beginning of the film after the kind of introductory things are there and you get the title sequence of F for Fake, you get a, a kind of interaction both with the the title and the, the kind of orienting hypertext of the film. And then you also get some intercut B-roll shots that kind of pan across 
spools and spools and spools of film. And some of, some of the spools of film have things written on them that sort of tell you what's going on. And so there's, there's, a, uh, there's a moment where it says a series of expert practitioners written on the sides of these rolls of film. And that's what you see. But if you actually go back and you pay close attention, you realize that it doesn't say a series of expert practitioners. It says a series of expert practioners. And again, it's utilizing the thing that your eye expects to see, but that is not really there. And it goes by fast. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you won't catch it until like two or three times in. And you're like, it doesn't say practitioners. It's spelled wrong. But to me, that line is, again, such a beautiful moment of like, okay, um, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew says, we're going to go through 14 generations from the beginning of, of humanity up to a certain point. Then we're going to go through another 14 generations up to another point, And then we're going to go through another 14 generations up to Jesus. And when you actually count the generations, the first set is 14, the second set is 14, and the third set is 13. And so Matthew at the very outset is saying, here it is, and here's what we're going to do. It's 14, 14, 14 is what Matthew says, and then he does 14, 14, 13. And it's almost like Matthew is saying, pay closer attention than just what I'm telling you on the page, because there's a lot of stuff going on here, and if you blink, you'll miss it. Like, to me, that is kind of the Matthew genealogy moment of F for fake, where at the very outset, you're shown something, and you think you see it, but if you're not paying really careful attention, you miss it. That's excellent. Uh, and I definitely missed that. And I'm going to, when I rewatch it, I'm going to, going to look for that. Uh, there's another, uh, more obvious, uh, reference to Catholicism, correct? Well, I mean, so there, there's a very famous sequence that comes about two thirds of the way through the film, uh, a meditation that takes several minutes where Orson Welles talks about the shark cathedral. Yeah. I, I want to make sure, is that what that you're is talking, what I'm about? talking about? Yeah. So why don't you why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what the sequence is like? So basically, Orson has uh, is incredibly familiar with this. They live very they live close by, and the sequence is about you know if names aren't important, if who did what is not important, but just the art exists for the art's sake, then he points out this cathedral as a prime example, and it's just it's still shots. That Orson apparently told uh, Gary to go in the exact same, you know, he planned them all out and Gary just kind of went and photographed them alone. Uh, and the quote that, that just hit me so lovely and so hard, a fact of life, we're going to die. Be of good heart, cried the dead artist out of the living past. Our songs will all be silent, but what of it? Go on singing. Perhaps the names don't matter. And I, I think that is another one of the core messages of, of the movie that really kind of struck with me. But that's, that's how I interpret and if it. That's I what may, I love. Well, tell, me, tell me your thoughts. Well, if I may bring that back, nobody owes me a follow, nobody owes me a platform, and nobody owes me a conversation. Because, again, it's not about me. That's right. <laughs> it's about what we're, what we're building together and, and what's bigger than us. And, and there's another piece that Wells talks about from that sequence about Shart where he says – if after all of our cities are gone and all of the, the sort of vestiges of humankind have been left, if the only thing that still exists is Chart, then maybe that's enough. Mm. Because maybe it's, it, maybe it's beautiful enough to point to all that we were and could be. 
and and maybe this is a monument that that is is worthy of encapsulating the entirety of humankind and it's especially worthy of it because it doesn't attach to one individual but rather it attaches to all of us and i i i mean you know this this is again the reminder that things like the the famous author the famous painter the famous theologian these are constructions that are market based and that they exist not to point us towards some greater moral seriousness, but to, to point us towards some profit uh, for some some group of people. And that that needs to be interrogated. And I, I think, you know, Wells understood that he had to create commercial products, but I think he really hated creating commercial products. I think that he couldn't stand the fact that he had to subject himself to a market and he couldn't just do it the way that he wanted to do it. He, he, he hated having to uh, subject himself to anything other than an actual audience. He hated subjecting himself to a, a manufactured audience. He hated subjecting himself to the faux audience of the critic and the expert. He wanted to actually interact with real people. Now, I'm just making all this up. I don't know how Wells really thought. I'm conjecturing from stuff that he said, but it feels like that was part of what drove his kind of mania and self-sabotage in many senses. Like he would create commercial products that were intended to be commercial products and destroy them. <laughs> you know, who does that? Who does yeah, that? No, that feels like, that feels like a correct read uh, to me. Let's, let's talk about it in, towards the beginning of the film. There is this fairly lengthy sequence, the girl watching sequence with Oya. Uh, tell me what you're, what do you think about that? Where does that exist in the film? What is that supposed to do? Uh, so for those that are listening who haven't seen the film yet, the the film takes a very abrupt and quick shift of tone, and it shows this beautiful young woman who was at the time uh, in a relationship with Orson Welles while he was married to someone else. This woman by the name of Oya Kodar, who, and Oya Kodar is now uh, the uh, executor of the Welles estate, so she was definitely an important and central part of his life. Uh, for a number of years, but Oya Kodar is walking through an Italian village, and apparently there are hidden cameras watching men watch her. And so there's this this kind of intercut and this really kind of interesting editing of Oya sort of flowing through the crowd, utterly stunning, beautiful, and watching all these dirty old men watch her. What's interesting is that if you go back into the history of film and film theory, there's a there's an there's a an exercise called the Kuleshov effect. And uh, if you if you hunt this up, um, Alfred Hitchcock did a, a rather famous version of the Kuleshov effect, but it didn't originate with Hitchcock. He just did a very memorable example of it. But the notion is you can intercut through the process of filmmaking, you can intercut different images to create different emotional resonances with the viewer. And the, the Hitchcock example is it shows a picture of Hitchcock sort of looking with a blank look on his face, and then it cuts to a little puppy, and then it cuts back to Hitchcock, and Hitchcock says, you think that I'm thinking good thoughts about the puppy. And then it cuts to, it's the same shot of Hitchcock, blank look on his face. It cuts to a little child playing ball outside the window. And then it cuts back to Hitchcock and it says, you think that I am thinking good thoughts about the child and that I'm thinking fatherly thoughts about the child. Then it shows the exact same shot of Hitchcock, blank look on his face. And a, 
a woman, it cuts to a woman in a swimsuit, and then it cuts back to Hitchcock, blank look on his face, and it says, now you think I'm thinking dirty thoughts about the woman. Nothing has changed about Hitchcock. What has changed is rather the effect of montage, the effect of bringing these different things together. And so we can ask, is this really what Wells said? that this was a set of hidden cameras that were designed to sort of show us these men reacting to Oya Kodar walking through this uh, Italian village, or is this the Kuleshov effect where they shot a bunch of images of men doing whatever, and then they shot images of Oya Kodar walking through, and and they just used the Kuleshov effect to, to create this kind of montage of ideas in our heads as viewers. The trick is, Michael, we don't know. And we can't know because we don't have access to the reality that was there. What we have access to is the film, the edited reality. That's right. And that, to me, it's endlessly interesting to think about That's the magic. And during that, there are no – there's no wide shots. There's only one shot in that sequence. It's all close-ups and – or medium shots of her. And there's there's one shot where she – you can – and it doesn't have to be her, but you can see the dress she is wearing at least – pass by somebody and interact a little bit with one of the people. But I think one of the things I listened to, uh, she talks about that she, that's a sequence that she had written and maybe even filmed. I don't know if that was part of the found footage that Orson had. I'm not sure Orson even shot that, but I think that that comes from a script that she was writing and she talks about being young and, and, you know, she's like with no false modesty, you know, beautiful and healthy and attractive. You know, and wanting to yeah. to play on that, and I think it, it. I think one, I think yes, he's playing with the magic, and two, he's setting us up for later in the film and uh, the, the Picasso sequence, which I think we probably ought to go ahead and so, just talk about now. But go go ahead. Well, and and, and well, I just want to. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, your interpretation of that early Oya Kodar sequence is that similar to what Orson is doing at the outset with the tuxedo and the hat, the fat man doing the magic tricks for the kid. It gives us a, a certain way of thinking about Oya Kodar right at the outset that, uh, that helps to frame then what follows at the end of the film when we actually pass out of the time that Orson has promised he's just going to tell us the truth and we move into supposedly total fabrication. So yeah, this is a good time for us to talk about that. So uh, set that up for us because so far what we know of Oya is that uh, she's Hungarian. And so was, so who else was Hungarian? They talked about being. Uh, So Elmer Doré supposedly was Hungarian and they make, they make a big thing about how Hungarians are, Chameleons, they're shapeshifters. They they transmute in order to survive. They want to be so, king of the con. And they, and they have no, they have no moral compunction about it because they've had all through their lives to to survive. And Wells connects himself to that Hungarian ethic as well. That that's exactly right. Well, and 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 so what goes on there is you shift into a point where they begin to tell a story about Oya Kodar and and. Wells and Kodar are playing different roles in this retelling of the story between supposedly Oya Kodar, Pablo Picasso, and Oya Kodar's dying father. And the conceit of the story is that at one point, Kodar is is seen by Picasso and becomes his muse for a period of time for a series of, I think it's 24 paintings. That's right, 24 or 22 and paintings. And Kodar, yeah, Kodar, Kodar agrees to 
pose for the paintings only on the condition that she is allowed to possess all the paintings after they are completed. And Picasso agrees, and they enter into this relationship. The paintings are painted, and then Kodar takes all the paintings away. At some point later, there is a report of a whole new Picasso period, and 24 paintings are about to be publicly displayed. And Picasso becomes very angry. He goes and he, he tries to track down what's happening. And what he discovers is that the paintings that are being displayed are not, in fact, any of the paintings that he painted of Kodar, but rather they are forgeries that were painted by Kodar's father. And there's a there's a kind of deathbed uh, interaction between Picasso and Kodar's father that is played out by Kodar and Wells sort of recalling where they're playing different roles in this conversation. And and at one point, you know, Picasso is saying you can't do this. And uh, Kodar's father is saying you have gifted the world with so many Picasso periods and you shapeshift so easily from one period to another, can't you just be generous and give me one of them? Let me be one of your Picasso periods. And Picasso tries to say, no, no. And, I, and by the way, Oya Kodar, I want all of my paintings back that I did for you. And Kodar's father then reports that all of those paintings were burned. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's a delicious moment that is tying together all of these different themes that are happening earlier in the film, the burning of the film, the burning of the, the paintings, all this sort of stuff. But also what we come to find is that it is complete fabrication. But the film is so good that when they shift into that, it's one of the most emotionally compelling parts of the film. And you, I found myself, and I still find myself, completely enraptured by the story because it's told so well. It's so beautifully and artfully rendered that I want it to be Com true. I want completely. It to be and I love how they set it up and how they really take their time. Like the, the, the sequence where Picasso, and of course they did not actually have Picasso you know, in this movie, what they did is they, they blew up these, you know, huge uh, pictures of him, kind of close-ups of him, and then put him on a background and then filmed that at their house. And that's cut, intercut with, like we were talking about earlier, with her, you know, walking to the beach, walking back. And they really take their time with it. Like she, 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 there's like five or six times where she's basically walking down to the beach and back and back. And so you really, you get time as the viewer to to do of your you are Picasso looking through the blinds at this beautiful woman. Uh, and that early that earlier sequence sets us up and tells us it's okay to look at her that way. That's absolutely right. Like that's that's what that earlier sequence helps us to do. It helps to give us permission to be like those guys in the cafe and to watch her. And something I I found really interesting and I'm I'm curious if what your thoughts on, on why this is uh, so in the story, the, the the pretend story they're telling about the grand is the grandfather being the uh, the the forger, uh, but it was actually her dad who played it, and they filmed that. That was actually you know live action film, but in the final version, it, they just used stills. And I don't know if that was because the the father was not a great actor, or they wanted to match the Picasso uh, stills, or I don't know. Do you have thoughts on why that choice was made? I honestly don't, and, and clearly I misremembered part of it because I thought that it was her her father instead of her grandfather, and so I don't know why. I think that uh, I think that Wells was interested in doing whatever he thought would work best for the artifice of the moment, and so if the if the live acted part didn't actually 
have the same emotional impact, then I think he was willing to scrap that to do something else, which I, I think that is the, the mark of a very brave artist, a person who is willing, as Stephen King says, to kill your darlings or kill the things that you've done in order for the audience to be given the maximum impact. That's right. And it completely, completely works. And then I love it. So at the very end of this, you know, we've had this scene now, this very, this is, this is where the movie actually kind of slows down just a little bit. And you have this two person scene with the horse and Anoya and they're interacting and they're pretending, you know, they're doing the conversation with Picasso and her grandfather. And then, you know, he turns to the camera again and beautifully and charmingly says, it's all a lie. And the, the filter they had used to kind of make it foggy goes away. You start to see the crew filmmakers, uh, the, the, everybody working on it. You see Oya saying goodbye. You know, it's just, it cuts out of it and it's just so charming and fun. Well, and that that's the thing that actually, and in this sense, F for Fake is really, it's really informing a lot of my later kind of intellectual projects. I guess the thing that I want to say to your listeners and to you is that it's fake all the way down. Like we, we have a sense that things are very solid and that reality is, is very easily accessed. And the, the more that I've tried to think about this carefully at all levels, philosophically, theologically, uh, physically, I, I think instead that reality, whether we're talking about physical reality or social reality, the things that we take to be real and solid are actually uh, very tenuous and, and are usually much more illusion than they are anything that is uh, able to be kind of pointed at and 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 trusted in that way. So we don't live in, we don't live in veritas. We live in verisimilitude. We live in the, the feeling of things being real rather than things being actual and real. And if you can get your head into that space, a lot of things begin to make sense that otherwise don't make sense because why would, why would we live in a world that is being burned to a crisp, uh, you know, and allow that to continue happening? Well, if you don't, if you, if you understand that things are not, that we aren't actually thinking of the world as the real world that's burning, but rather we're thinking of the world as the story that we're telling ourselves, we can continue to tell ourselves a false story for a long time. And we do that with a lot of things. But, but the place where that becomes most evident is every film is a constructed reality. Like if you, if you simply turn on a camera and you just film something happening on a street, you actually haven't created a film. It doesn't become a film until you actually make the cut and you begin to, you begin to reassemble reality into a montage. And so much of what we take to be just linear reality is reassembled for us in montage. And so many things are fast fakes that uh, if you blink, you miss it. So much of our life is constructed like that. I didn't mean to get down and weird at the end here, but that's, I mean, this is really what the film brings up for me is, you know, Wells saw something. He saw a deeper truth that really, that really begins to spin your brain when you, when you try and get into the headspace that he was in. Completely. I think that's a good place to leave it. David, you've been so generous with your time and thank you so much for sharing your work, your life. Thank you for sharing this movie with me. I absolutely adored it and I'm going to be, it's going to be just on the regular rotation. I, I want to visit it and I wanted to let it sink in and I want to get deeper with it. Uh, thank you for introducing it to me. I really appreciate it. Michael, Michael, you've been incredibly generous with your time and for anyone to give me this amount of space in which to talk and talk and talk is a real gift to me. And it's just very, very nice to reconnect with you. This has been a joy and I hope we get a chance to talk again Me soon. too. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening, for welcoming back the podcast. 
Thank you to David for being so open and generous with his work, his life, his insights, for introducing me to F for Fake, and for being a part of my origin story with this incredible film. We'll be back next month interacting with another new-to-me work of art. Here's a teaser. See you next month. Hey, Michael, this is Jonna Kotler from your MFA. I've got an epic poem I think you're going to love. I know, an epic poem, but I really love it. It's The Odyssey, the translation by Emily Wilson, and it's amazing. Check it out.